and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're returning to the show, I'm absolutely thrilled. And if you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow our show handle on Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our Patreon and some cool Things Are Going Great For Me swag. Hey, the holidays are upon us. Why not treat yourself and a family member to some dignified swag? We've got hoodies, t-shirts, and tote bags, so check them out and listen in comfort and style. You can find all our products in our link tree on our show Instagram page at things are going great for me. On our link tree, you'll also find our Patreon, which features additional interview coverage from our Season 1, Season 2, and Season 3 guests, including our bonus Quarpod series, in which I ask guests about how they adjusted to life in quarantine and how the pandemic is continuing to change life in the entertainment industry. Our Patreon is a vital part of making this show happen, so if you'd like to support us, give us a subscribe on there. You can check us out on Patreon directly at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And by the way, we're delighted to welcome back our sponsor for this series, Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be exceptional. Icelandic Glacial natural spring water sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon and at local retailers near you. If you like any of what you hear today, please do us a big kindness. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a nice comment. Tell your aunt about us. Give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. On each episode of this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, famous podcast hosts, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming actors and comedians, and established producers, authors, writers, and directors. Today's first guest is Sufi Bradshaw. Sufi is an actor best known for her series regular role on HBO's multiple Emmy-winning political satire Veep as the hilarious and deadpan Sue Wilson. She, along with the rest of the Veep cast, were also nominated for four Screen Actors Guild Awards for outstanding performance by an ensemble in a comedy series. Recently, Sufi wrapped the feature film Gasoline Alley opposite Bruce Willis and the D.B. Weiss film Metal Lords for Netflix. Some of her additional film credits include The Disappearance of Mrs. Wu, Star Trek, Murder Mystery, alongside Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler, and Together Together, alongside Ed Helms and Patty Harrison. Her additional TV credits include Lovecraft Country for HBO and The Guest Book for TBS. We had a wonderful chat. I'm a big fan. I'll be speaking with Sufi in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my interview with Tona Tiu. With almost a decade of experience on both stage and screen, Tona Tiu is known for standout performances, including his recent portrayal of Antonio Sandoval on the ABC drama Promised Land. A native Los Angelino, Tona Tiu also attended USC's School of Dramatic Arts and School of Cinematic Arts. While in college, his passion for the stage connected him with theater companies around Los Angeles, such as I Am a Theater Company and the Echo Theater Company, where he starred in the play Fixed. In the final performance of Fixed, Tona Tiu met Mexican-American actress and showrunner Tanya Siracho, who was inspired by his performance and wrote him into her GLAAD Media Award-winning star series, Vida. Tona Tiu's three-season recurring guest arc as the gender-bending Marcos Zamora landed him on the cover of the LA Times calendar section. Most recently, Tona Tiu was seen in the Peacock original Angeline, starring Emmy Rossum and Martin Freeman, and next up he'll be appearing in the Netflix and Amblin thriller feature film, 
carry on. Stick around for Tone to TU's interview. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss it. But before we move on to interviews, I'm beside myself to welcome back my producer and co-host, Winston Carter. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. So good, good, good. So Sufi really shined in her role mm-hmm. as Sue Wilson on Veep, mm-hmm. and yep. uh, and she and I talked a lot about the use of improv on that show. Of course, uh, Matt Walsh, who co-starred with Sufi as political aide turned journalist Mike McClintock, is one of the original mm-hmm. UCB four. I was going to ask mm-hmm. you, did you ever get a chance to take class with Matt Walsh or any of the UCB four? I have not. I think I, I no is the answer. I did sit in on some. Did I? I feel like I went to something like it was like a huge thing where he was like, gave a talk or something at the uh, at UCB Sunset in like their big, their what the Inner Sanctum stage. I feel like I I went yeah. one time to a thing. Uh, super talented. I've watched him perform a ton. He's great. Oh, super um, funny. Yeah. yeah. We we talked no. about she she talked about how many of the performers on the show were originally Chicagoans and mm-hmm. um, you know since you loved improv and you were in uh, Oklahoma did you ever go just take classes in Chicago did you did you ever consider moving to Chicago No uh, no weirdly I uh, I did I guess I did for a minute think about. Uh, maybe going to Chicago, but it was only really once I moved out here. Uh, yeah, I like, right. I like Chicago. I haven't been there in 20 years probably, mm-hmm. but um, it was great then. <laughs> uh, uh, no, but it's, um, <laughs> it never occurred to me. I, I, uh, for my own personal thing, I did not move to LA to do improv. Improv was one of the things that I was able to get to do because I moved to LA. If that makes sense. Why did you, why did like, you move to LA? I'm, oh, I'm sure I asked business, you this, but I can't for remember. For the juice, baby. For that sweet, sweet entertainment industry. <laughs> to, get a, to get a production uh, deal? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I moved here to become an associate producer at a media company. <laughs> it's no <laughs> made it. answer. You made it. Yeah, I, I fucking... Dude, you listen, did it. this is the high life. High life. Uh, <laughs> renting in Koreatown. What are they Truly bumping... Truly achieved the dream. What are they bumping you up over there? You've been an associate producer for a while I got, I just... I, I got... I did get a... This does not need to be. The, I did get a bump, but it was like a little middle bump. It was a sizable bump. I nice. shouldn't say it was a good bump. And now I'm senior. I'm a you know senior. what? You're a, you're a sizable bump in my heart. Thank you. I want you to know that. Thank uh, you. Uh, so I saw you posted about. It looked like the movie Triangle of Sadness. Is that what you were watching? Yes. How yeah. was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks uh, good. It's good. It's it if it uh, it meanders a little bit, but it is a pretty great takedown. Uh, that director is really amazing because he'll he Who makes is the director that make. Oh, what is his name? Hold on. What else has Hold he done? On. He did um, uh, the square. Oh yeah, I liked was, I saw, I liked the square. Yeah, um, yeah. that's. He has directed. Hold on, I want. I want to. He directed Force Majeure too. That's the other movie. Oh, which is the, Force Majeure yeah. is great. Did yeah. you see the original or did you see the? Um, I've never. I haven't seen that's either. I'm familiar that's a, that's with That's a connection both. with Julia Louis Dreyfus. But um, mm-hmm. the yep. I did not see the new the American one. I did see the yeah. original. It's excellent. Mm. Um, yeah. I have he, seen. He's the square. very good. That director is yeah. very good at building tension. 
very good, yeah. expertly he good. Builds tension, makes these, uh, I think, I mean, the square, uh, the two I've seen are really explicitly about how do I make fun of kind of high art? Uh, but he does it in a way where yeah. I'm like, but these are movies that would be shown at LACMA. Like, like he, you know what I'm saying? Like, like he is both making art house cinema that makes fun of art house everything else. Right. And I yeah. think it's really fascinating. Um, uh, and yeah, yeah, Triangle of Sadness was great. It's just insane. It's just batshit crazy and has like, <laughs> it's 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 definitely not uh, for everyone, but I enjoyed it. I saw a movie called The Menu. Oh, I need to see that. That's speaking. That's of on my list so high highly. I need to see it. I really need to see it. It's it's good. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My, okay. I wanted to. I, I thought. Okay. I, we don't do a lot of like talking about the current art that's going on, but I do need to talk about this to you just to see and cut this if you will. Have you watched Andor? Have we talked about it yet? Oh, I am watching Andor. I'm not that far into it but i really enjoy it i'm probably two or three episodes in but it's great okay it's just getting good okay it's yeah this to uh, me this is like star wars for adults this show it's i think it really i it upsets me because i don't want to be the guy who's like i need star wars to be grittier but it, it it's not and i think what i put it is gritty right yeah yeah what it what what's important it it's it is telling a Star Wars story without any of the traditional bullshit, which is what I like. It's like someone finally went, "Oh, I can make a Star Wars story that doesn't that isn't nostalgia." That, that is isn't nostalgia. Thing. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's I agree with. And, you. Is it Tony Gilroy? Is that his name? Yeah, it's the guy who did Tony Night Gilroy. Nightcrawler and yep. a bunch of great yep. stuff. He's great. Tony and I think Dan is also involved. It is, but also I mean, love Diego uh, Luna, Bo Willeman, Bo Willeman. Oh from, yeah, from. Uh, you know, from from House of Cards, uh, House of Cards and... fame is a staff writer on the show. Like the show's oh, nuts. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I would, I would, I can't wait till you finish it. Uh, it is, I think, without a doubt, the best TV that's come out this year that I've seen by a mile. Cool. It is the best show. I I'll be shocked if it doesn't win at least two or three Emmys. I was watching. I think another a new favorite Christmas movie of mine, which is Batman Returns. Batman Returns? Is that, yeah, is that, I think it's solid. That's not the Mr. Freeze one, is it? No, no that's, that's the one, that's one's... the one with Catwoman and Penguin. This is Penguin, Penguin and Catwoman. Yeah, that one. Oh yeah. Cause all the little penguins have like little like rockets that are kind of candy caned, right? Oh, it's fully a Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Christmas is what's going on in Gotham. Oh. At the, Chris it's, Watkins it's in that solid, right? Yeah. It's solidly a Christmas movie. And I got to say, you know, Jack Nicholson aside, mm-hmm. I think I kind of prefer Batman Returns a little bit. Really? They, well, they have more. It looks like they have more money, so they really fill out Gotham more. It feels a little mm-hmm. bit more like a bigger, like a like a like they like they got to sort of use more money to create Gotham. Um, mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer is just in. She's just so she's great, great. as great. Catwoman, and um, you know Christopher Walken's great, and and Danny DeVito is. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a tour de force performance yeah. I'm gonna as watch Oswald this movie Cobblepot. Highly recommend as a Christmas movie. I'm going to watch this movie. All right, folks. Without further ado, here now is the sweet, talented, inspiring, and kind Sufi Bradshaw. 
interviewed a, a good friend of mine, Zibby Allen, and uh, and that led to my being in touch with her PR team. And then I saw that they were working with you as well. Um, and so I reached out because I am I'm a fan of yours. And uh, so I I so appreciate you coming on and doing this interview. Um, you were you were on one of my very favorite shows, uh, which uh, was HBO's comedy Veep. Veep. Uh, I'm a huge fan of all involved, and had been a longtime fan of Armando Iannucci and oh, also gosh. Julia Louis Dreyfus. Yeah, yeah, and you've you appeared in 49 episodes of Veep, playing Vice President Selena Meyer's executive assistant Sue Wilson. Yes, very acerbic. <laughs> Sue is one the one who coordinates her uh, Selena's schedule organizing all her meetings and visits, and she also acts as her gatekeeper. She has a straight-talking, no-nonsense approach to her job, including a lovely quote, the vice president is the second most important person in the world. I arrange for you to see her, so in my eyes, that makes me the third most important person in the world. <laughs> yes. She's not a shy girl whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and as you've been talking about already, so you, I understand you have a bit of a mix of dramatic training and maybe some comedy training as well. Do you have some comedy yeah. training? Because you've done plenty of, I mean, certainly Veep is one of the best comedies, will go down as one of the best comedies of all time. You're hilarious on that show. Also a performance, though, that is super grounded in reality and organic choices. And, and I think I know a little bit about your dramatic training. I'd love to chat with you about that. But did you ever take any, you know, I, I know you said you were born in Chicago, raised in L.A. When did you move to, how old were you when you moved to L.A.? Because I know com comedy and Chicago are almost synonymous. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I got to know the guys over at Veep, mostly Chicagoans, believe it or not. Julia, yeah. uh, Gary Cole, right. Anna Klumsky, I believe, like Tim was in Chicago for a bit of time. Very, very close to like, I know Gary did Steppenwolf, and that's the theater right. company, but also the, the UCB train and improv mm -hmm. in Chicago. I actually was seven when my mom and dad split. Uh, so then mom was like, that is a surefire way for us to get as far away from him as possible. So she moved me and okay. my siblings to Los Angeles. So I was a child. Um, I did go back to Chicago off and on as an adult. I did um, some theater, some community theater there, but nothing hmm. as, as um, extended as any kind of an improvisational thing in Chicago. But it's certainly, uh, certainly a second home to me. I started acting at a, a place called the LACC Theater Academy. Yeah, I, yeah, I read that. Yeah. It sits on the corner of uh, Santa Monica in Vermont, right here in LA, and very non-assuming place. It's a community college, so you could walk by it and miss it. But inside of the college, there across from the library, there's this beautiful academy that is a three-year program that Morgan Freeman went to, that Mark no Hamill kidding. was a part of. Wow. You could look it up. Yeah, I know Meg Ryan spent some time there. There are countless really great, successful actors that came out of that program. Yeah. Um, and so I studied there. I, I got my training there, and I was a dramatic actor. I, I mean, that's, a, that's one way to say that. I think it's interesting to say dramatic or comedic, because I think both of those areas, they... They collide. Completely. But, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's necessary. Except, you know, like, you're going to be dramatic or comedic. But what I did learn at the Academy, there was my roots. Um, I learned all about stage. I learned stage, stagecraft. I learned the proscenium, upstage, downstage, all of the stuff. And then I would be a theater actress there for the better half of three years. And then I would get out and do community theater at the Greenway Court Theater with the Roby Theater Company and, and countless other right. companies. And so, yeah, so I was always, you know, I had a flair for... Just tell it, telling really great stories. Uh, and a lot of those seem to be steeped in drama, drama stories. Now, I uh, 
I had done some comedy prior to Veep, but Veep was my first uh, series regular. It was my first mm-hmm. kind of like real job <laughs> um, outside of theater and, and, and independent films that yeah. I got into 2011. And so with that, yeah, you know, being in the room with those comedic geniuses like Julia and Matt Walsh and Tony Hale. Yeah. Reed Scott and Anna Klumski and then later Sam Richardson and, and right. Gary Gary Cole will come along. I mean, these are some of the, the most trained improvisational actors. So I did then go to UCB. I remember season one, I went and took some of Matt's classes, which was like, what's up, Matt? <laughs> teach, me, t- teach me how to be funny. That's right? awesome. Yeah. yeah. So that's my, my road there and how they kind of collided. But I, I, I do. I, I appreciate both of them. Yes, I do too. And I think that, yes, I agree. And I've brought this up on here a few times. It's like the, the, one of my favorite examples of that thing that we were talking about drama and comedy colliding is like when you, when you, when you look at the Chekhov plays and the fact oh. that he called, he called them comedies, you know, really? in which, yeah. In which, you know, stories in which people like kill themselves and never fall in love and lose their family home. And, but, you know, it, it, you know, but you, but with someone like Masha walking around and someone saying to her, "Why do you always wear black?" and she says, "Because I'm in mourning for my life." I mean, Honey, it's just a funny yes, line. Yes, we can all relate. You we go can like, relate, right? And even Shakespeare, you know, right? There was the comedy absolutely. of errors, but that certainly that wasn't all very funny. Yeah. Um, I think you're absolutely yeah. right. Some a, a good friend of mine said, "You either you laugh or you cry." Ah, that's true. It's so true. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, you ain't never lied. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you a little bit about, because I know that when you were at Los Angeles City Theater Academy, that there was, you were studying, I think you were studying Meisner. Is that right? And you may have gone on to study some Strasbourg, or maybe you studied oh, both of those uh, subse- little, subsequently. Yeah. The Academy trained actors from like just completely being green. They're uh, never acting before and teaching them about the history of theater and also the, the entire uh, stage of the theater and, and, and character analysis and backstory and all the theater stuff that can be applied to to television and film acting. But yeah. it, wa- it wasn't until I got out of college and got a few like, you know, night jobs, waiting tables and such uh, uh, before I studied Meisner and I took some classes at Playhouse West and uh, Strasbourg. Okay. I actually was a working finalist for the actor studio um, here with um, Mark Rydell and Salome. Yeah, and Martin uh, Lando, right? bless his soul. Yeah, Martin was amazing. I, I got to study under him for several years and uh, just uh, one of the most giving, um, pious, humble, rich actors I'd ever I'd ever met. And I was always in awe of him. He yeah. moderated there. They moderate on, on Fridays. There's yeah. this little house that sits in West Hollywood. There are two actor studios. There's one that's kind of incognito. Right. The one that sits in um, West Hollywood. Oh, by do you dog, mean, sorry. A dog park. There, there, you're saying there are two here in LA? Yeah, it's an interesting one. There's an institute that's an actor studio that I think is on Santa Monica. That's not where at all where I studied. I studied at the one that's more incognito. It's uh, near a dog park on DeLong Prey uh, in West Hollywood. I say that because I think that I talked to a journalist a couple of years ago and they had gotten them mixed up. Um, but yeah, so there's that. But that that's also the actor studio that's in New York City as well. Right, right. Those the, those are the ones started by by Lee Strasberg. Right. Yeah. So it, yeah, I, I did an audition there once oh for, my God. for a friend. And I love that. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience. Very. It was one of the more sort of anxiety filled 
<laughs> Although I don't know, like, like it just was, I think the work, I mean, it wasn't, it was interesting because they weren't really looking at me, but even still I had heard that somebody had you never come know. in as a part, yeah. you never know. And but they, they knew. <laughs> well, here's the deal too, like, they you know, knew, it but is, you get, it, you get shot is. into a room that is so dark, impossibly dark. Right? Yes. Is that, this is was the that exact, your experience? Yeah. This is the space that you're talking about that I'm talking about. It's the same place by that dog park. You walk yeah. down the stairs, you wait outside, you go through. Yeah, I, I spent uh, the better half of two years over there getting rejected. <laughs> Which for was you, the best. For doing that. I know, for getting rejected. But they let you become a working finalist. So I got right. to work with some of the greats and I got to just sit and listen to Martin and Mark Rydell and Salome Jeans and Alan Miller and Lou Antonio, and some of these amazing, amazing, like some of the world's best teachers as um, someone, so they let me work. The only thing is they never gave me the jacket or the badge. And so I think their thing is they really oh, want God. actors, which I respect. There isn't really a jacket, is there? That'd be, I mean, no. it's a figurative, it could be. There could be some stitching made in the back room. You never I mean, know what they're doing. Very, fam very famously, it would take these you know, actors that we think of as legends, but it was like Harvey Keitel was like nine or 15 times I had yeah. to audition. And, yeah. Al Pacino, I don't think they even yeah. let somebody in. Oh, um, Jack Nicholson never got in. Never got in, yeah. So yeah, I'm so happy. So you know what I'm talking about over there. Um, yeah, a little bit. I was, going, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, it's extremely daunting in that very dark room. And do you remember what year it was? Do you remember if Martin Landau uh, was on the board? He was in the room. I know he was yeah. in the room when I auditioned, which was fascinating. Oh. I saw his glasses out in the in the dark there. And I think, um, <laughs> I, I don't even know if he had any notes. I think we did our scene. I don't, I don't think they gave notes. At that, or maybe they did for they some people. They don't give but, one note. Yeah. You yeah, go yeah. in there. It's almost like the Green Mile. You're walking down this corridor, you know, of, of, of concrete. And you walk in and you're like, name, rank, serial number, right? And you sort right. of go do this scene that's sort of plucked out of nowhere and you get no feedback and it's very quiet and you go i don't know yeah. if i've just wrecked my friend's career right, or I just, right. yeah like because it's a lot of pressure being the you know we did our thing we did a scene from lobby hero i thought it was fine <gasps> i'd done that scene a thousand times and as <gasps> i recall like i felt good you know i i think it was okay but maybe it wasn't extraordinary and i had plenty to learn but um they, I don't know how it, I don't think that it went great for them. Hopefully that wasn't on me, but I, but I think we had a good time doing it. I'm glad for the experience. I'm glad I, I glad I know what the, what that room felt like. Cause it was, yes. it, it was an experience. It's like no other room really. And it's such a revered place. And it's so nice to talk to you about this because if you haven't been in that room, you just haven't been in that room and you wouldn't, done it, you wouldn't know what it's like walking into like the Shawshank of, that's a joke, but, <laughs> but no, I learned some of the best it's brew it's um very exposing experience there at the, at the studio i'm not a member yet although i went away and started to shoot my series and then from there i would do a, a series of other really great projects yeah ton of netflix stuff and i did this yeah. really one great character called nawi the nigerian warrior which is my favorite character for a show called <laughs> lovecraft country of but, course right yes but i was saying even on that HBO, even then yeah, also on hbo also on HBO. So, but even then, it's like they still. I'm still auditioning. When I want to, I can always go back. Maybe you and I can do a scene. Go, oh my, we'll go, we'll go be, in there and show them what's. <laughs> that would be a huge honor. Please let me know yes. if you would like to do that. I would love you're to do that short, with you. You're on the short list. Yes, <laughs> you and me. You and me. Um, so, well, lo I love all that. And I think, um, so, so let me, I, now I'm going to try to keep my Veep questions to uh, somewhat of a minimum, but I, you yeah. know, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved you on it. And I, so how about, um, 
did you get to go to the White House? I can't oh, remember wow. if the cast got to go. So, yeah. so Because you the, shot in D.C., right? We did. The first four seasons of Veep was shot in Baltimore, Maryland, believe it or not, which is only about right. 20, what, minutes outside of D.C., we right. we we shot in this bungalow style place that the amazing set designers made look like the Eisenhower building, and we right. uh, shot there for we stayed there the entire cast and it was for tax purposes but also because we had more autonomy, uh, and then we didn't go and do the exterior shots in D.C. Uh, we did get to season one prior to hearing that we had gotten picked up. And then before we shot the second episode, which was frozen yogurt, we'd, we'd only shot the pilot <laughs> at this point. We all got to go to the White House. This is the one where Selena goes to get frozen yogurt and has horrible diarrhea. Is that what she, happens? She, she shits her pants. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's right. That's... I, I'm recalling this now. What a fantastic episode. That was so much fun. That was our second episode we ever shot, right? Out of all of them. and Because we had done the pilot. We'd been... So to answer your question, yeah, we went to the White House and it's so funny because it's so much smaller than it looks like on TV. It, these rooms, it? Have, yeah. you, have you ever been to the White House? I've been outside of it. I've never. Oh, oh have I been inside? I don't remember. That's how like a school was, tour yeah. or something that like because I, I never think went. I did. Yeah, I never got to go uh, in like college or high school. So this was so interesting. But you walk in there and it's so miniature and it seems like such a giant place from the outside. So that was awesome. So we could get the authenticity. And then the set designer came in and made our bungalow look very much. I think they did just a stand-up job. So, yeah, Yeah. that was the one experience. Uh, Michelle Obama was there. God, I'm so... I know it was myself, the cast, and then um, Simon Blackwell and Armando Anucci, the creators of the show, were all... We were all kind of... We had to sort of do this field trip, uh, triangular you know, walking, blocking. So when you walk, you walk together. But so of course me and Simon Blackwell, we see some presidential M&Ms or something. We're just in awe about, and we go taper off, like, oh, maybe we could go get some. And then yeah. we're, we're just away or whatever. You end up in the Lincoln bedroom. And, yeah. Well, and like, yeah, or, you know, right, exactly. Or, or Kennedy's desk or wherever it is it was. And, and then one of the Secret Service men, this true story, he says, hey, Barack's in there. I was like, <gasps> I could wow. like I couldn't catch my breath. And then so Simon and I are standing outside trying to maybe get a glimpse like the paparazzi. And we don't. We, they don't let us in. <laughs> Meanwhile, we go back and died? we do it. We yeah he was maybe had a couple of things on the on the, on the list <laughs> so we go back and we join the cast and my friend Reed was like Sophie you just missed Michelle <laughs> oh no you got to be kidding me is that I true swear, oh that's I so swear. sad I was so on the I hunt for, so... <laughs> on the hunt for those presidential M and M's we get we get sidetracked it was all about yeah it's like you know the moral of the story you can't be chasing the candy right don't don't chase the sweets but boy that was a story and and oh I guess gosh. they they had sort of and Anna had met uh, her and and Julia and they were all like I was like what was she like they were like oh she was like hey what are you guys doing here <laughs> like, get out <laughs> it's my house get out yeah or just as nice she was just as, as like yeah, humble and, and just down to earth Chicago and that's another yeah. they're they're Chicagoans as right. you could be so. Uh, so that was my that was my Michelle Obama very oh. very near miss, uh, uh, and I, I'd later do a commercial which you can Google it's uh, for snack apocalypse um, that Michelle is in the end of. But obviously we didn't shoot it at the same time. But gotta well, have one day, it. one day, yeah. right? Well, it's happening. It's gonna happen. I have high hopes. <laughs> I hope I get to meet either either <sighs> of them too. I know. Oh, um, what a, yeah. What a close call. 
I know, I know, just like that. I have my, my very near miss story of Michelle. I'll, I'll see her. I'll be like, Michelle, I almost saw you. She'll be like, I almost saw a million people, Suvi. But I, I'll, <laughs> I'll look out for you. <laughs> I can't wait to meet her. So, so, such a, she's such a great example. I look up to her so much. For all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, so now, am I right that your audition for Veep was via Skype oh. at the time? I mean, if we could ever predict the way the future of the business was going to go. Things are now, right? Right, that is correct. I auditioned for Allison Jones, got back in mm -hmm. 2011. Larchmont yeah. Village was her, where her um, casting directing office was. It may even still be there. Wonderful woman. I had been, had heard stories about her being so great. And she, so, yeah. I was so I was so comfortable when I walked in and she was so welcoming. And so Armando Anucci and a few of the other guys, including Simon Blackwell and Chris, our other director, were all in Baltimore location scouting. So they mm. couldn't see Sue. And I think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that Sue was the last character that they were going to cast for the for the ensemble. Mm. So they've been looking for her. And so here I am. And it, it just came to pass. I got the audition. I went in. It was very much like this that we're doing. The audience can't see this because this is... Uh, audio but you and i are looking at each other <laughs> yeah that's right uh, yeah and um and i and i and i met amando and we, we did the monologue that i had been practicing you know not getting any sleep uh, for a week because i knew that i'd had this audition and for hbo wow. which i did it and it was just kind of a nice to meet you so i walk out and i'm like well i didn't book that <laughs> right yeah, that's i heard you said that yeah that you just thought it didn't go well, it didn't go good now wait you said well, you had interesting. a you had a week you said that you were preparing for this the for your first audition for them very first audition i'd okay. gotten the call yeah you know i don't know as far as like lending to what you just said i don't think any actor ever really thinks that they they did well right, uh, I'm, right. I'm, that's a big it's hard to know presumption but i i always got kind of you know veer on the side of like i could have done better or mm -hmm. like almost like your experience with the actor's studio even though you were amazing and you knew every word and you did the you were connected with the silence you never know right you know? it's almost mm -hmm. like if, if i had been given the job like right away i'd be like oh okay i I guess my training paid off, but so no, then nothing. Then I walked out of the office. You hear, and, the, you, you hear those stories every once in a while where some, that somebody is like, and they got offered the job in the room and it's, that has <gasps> never happened for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're still waiting. You and I, Claude, we, we, we got, we got uh, this future ahead of us. Well, so you're doing be, great. But yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, so yeah, no, nothing for a week after that. So of course mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'd gone back to waiting tables and my, my day-to-day -day job and then I'd gotten a second call back and I went in again a lot more confident and did exactly they say always do sort of the same thing that you did in the first one if you get the call right. back did it just the same Allison as great as can be walked in did it nothing crickets I go okay well I didn't book that but hey better look next time you know and another week had gone by and um then I'd sort of gotten a call to do a test read where they were going to fly me to Boston Correction, they were gonna fly me to Baltimore and I was gonna meet with Anna Klumsky and do a chemistry test because she and I had a lot of scenes together. The girls of the office outside of Julia and she was as lovely as she could be. I, mm. I remembered her from My Girl being a huge yeah. fan of that movie. I was like in yeah. awe. I just just didn't love that movie. I just remember watching it all the time. Yeah. Right, Veda or yeah, her and, and Macaulay Culkin and uh, That's right. So I was a huge fan and so I met with Anna. She lives in New York City with her husband Chris and her two kids now. And so she it was really then just a train ride for her. 
But me, I took a plane from Los Angeles to Baltimore, met Anna, finally met Armando, did a read. You know, I just remember at the end of it, he was more like, oh, and you, you can improv. I go, yeah, yeah. I go, I'm from a family of nine. We're improving all the effing time at Thanksgiving. You know, like I made him laugh. And That's then I got nice. on the plane. And then this time when I landed from uh, Baltimore to LAX, my agent called and he said that I'd booked the job. Amazing. And I screamed like a little girl inside That's of LAX. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. amazing. <laughs> um, I love that note that you threw in about being in a family of nine. nine? Uh, you, you got eight siblings? Yeah, yeah. We a lot lost a lot of brothers. Ton of brothers. Uh yeah, I have six of them. We lost our sister Deborah in two thousand and thirteen. So that was uh, Oh, I'm so sorry. Devastating. That's thank thank you for saying you're sorry. Yeah, it was, it's been a while now. Still love her. It's like she's not of course uh, gone. She's she was my biggest champion and fan and so uh yeah, so that's uh, us and a bunch of brothers, hence the um all the sports that I play, right? Basketball and hmm. football and the tomboy I am. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it's awesome being from a huge family. It's like you always have these built-in friends and also you are never, uh, you never have your own tube of toothpaste, but you learn how to share <laughs> at, a, at, a, at, a, at an early age. I heard you talking a lot about, you know, sort of before you got into acting per se, that it was a lot of like playing pretend in the backyard, running around, oh. cops and robbers and that oh, kind of thing honey. growing up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I love those stories. It's like, as much as I am close to my brothers, it, I was always just kind of like, you know, it's just a bunch of boys and then me and I, my mother was very like, at the beginning, she's like, you are not the boys. I was like, no, mm. mom, I want to go with them to the mall. And I want to be, and she's <laughs> like, you are a girl. Like, I loved that she made that separation. At first, it seemed like it wasn't fair, but I like love her for that. And, but so no, I did spend a lot of time alone. And then that creative, yeah, that imagination kicked in. I remember just creating these worlds like I was the strawberry shortcake gang and I mean you name it you <laughs> name, name it Claude I was I was all over it yeah no right the name strawberry shortcake gang we had our little jackets and we had our little mantras and there was these beautiful we had a beautiful yard on Avers in Chicago and uh it was there that I just I just I don't know I would go into these places where uh lot lots of fantasy but later it's interesting because I became a writer right which is what I'm currently mm. working on and so it um it all yeah. makes sense now Yeah well it sounds they, like a wonderful <laughs> imagination growing up and a, an ability to particularly with this so like you're you're doing this audition so uh, and he's asking you do you improvise did you then in that moment did you we, did they have you had, do Oh, in the moment of the audition, there was no improvisation. We wouldn't do, we wouldn't improv until we actually all were in the room with our scripts for the first show. And then we would open it up mostly written, okay. by the way, and the show was written. And uh, then the actors would come in and we do this thing that Julia suggested with Armando, like, let's open this up and see where it goes. So you sort of put your script down and you get up right. and me and, me and Tony or, or Anna, we'd all stand up and we would make and see. And the writers were always taking notes. This happened about four days a week. And so then some of the stuff that fit, fit, fit and it was funny made it into the second draft. So then we'd then do it again, read, have a table read. It was very, hmm. very um What's the name of it where it does like this all the time? It's, turnover uh, or lots of drafts? It was like yeah, lots of drafts, lots of turnover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, repetition well, you in know, that. Sh shows do that, but they don't usually do that with the actors, you know? you get Oh, yeah. Right? You get your blue version, your pink versions of the script, but they're, that's happening. They're, you know, some shows they'll do a table read. 
but it sounds like they did more of that with with all of you than maybe yeah. on another kind of a show. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I've only heard of that on other shows. The beauty of working with the uh, Julia and Armando was, and Simon Blackwall, they, they were the three heads, is that Julia's a genius, an absolute yeah, is, yeah. comedic genius. Mm -hmm. And she knew that uh, with, with the funny within, a lot of the funny comes from in the moment. So she encouraged the uh, the writers to just do that, put the scripts down and let's all get, let's get at it. And she'd come up with these great scenarios and we'd all be her like wing people. And because hmm. that was the show, right? It was the vice president getting in trouble and us getting her out. That, if you think about it, that's what we were doing for sure. was our Absolutely. full time job. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, we were, yeah, it was just genius. And then once we had gotten the rhythm of it and once we'd known what the, what the, you know, what the appeal V was, it was then just easy and fun to go into those, those make-believe worlds with her. And she's so rich and she gave us so mm -hmm. much. She's so rich in material. She gave yeah. us so much to work with. And then by like season two, I was really, um, I was really comfortable with improvisation, um, you know, coming from a dramatic background. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because as you said, like the show is written and, and it, you know, I, I got an, I had an opportunity to audition for the show one time. Oh, and, God. Um, oh my God. Amazing. Which do you remember what what episode or what season? Uh, you know what? I don't remember what season now, but it was an incredible experience. So I had come ah. in for Allison like the week before for Allison Jones for a, some Paul Feig project that he was doing, and she was as you said it was my I finally got to meet her, and she was lovely to me. And she yeah. did. She said she said I reminded her of a young Adam McKay, which was unexpected, but I was that was very sweet of her to say. And then um, she said, I'm going to bring you in for Veep. And sure enough, she did. And that was my favorite show. And sure enough. So then a week later, I went in and uh, they it was an interesting experience. They miked me before oh. I went into the room, which doesn't happen a lot. And it was a small room. And it was about nine people in the room. Julia Louis-Dreyfus was in the middle of the room uh, reading with the actors. And I you know, this is, you know, I just didn't know that any of that was going to happen. And it's not typical, right? Not typical. And I, but I was thrilled. I mean, I don't know that, you know, I wonder if it threw me. I had a great time auditioning, felt like the room was very warm. She was a little more serious, but I completely understand that. She's like, we've talked about, she's a comedic genius. She's one of my comedic, you know, heroes. Um, but I, I, but she read with me, and I did feel very comfortable reading with her. She was, I, she was a generous reader uh, with me, and um, you know. But the only thing that I felt was that I just didn't know. I didn't know what was happening. I think it really speaks to the fact that having a good agent or manager, they should prepare you properly. This is this was my point. That that you know, as you said, this show was written, and I and I and I knew that this was written by, for example, a lot of like Oxbridge and Harvard type mm. writers, right? And you know, so I had fun doing it, and I think like I would, what I would do is I'd have like a little comedic button at the end of the scenes, but um, but I would never have presumed to go off script and then somebody after the fact another actor i can't remember who was like oh in that room for that show you're supposed to just go right off script that was the thing that i was like That's so interesting yeah you go like wait that would have been nice to know that i had it would have been nice to know that and also i would never have assumed that because these writers are so great you know this team mm -hmm. is such they're such a crack team so i don't you know I, that that's why i was curious about so he asked so armando iannucci he asked you can you improvise 
But then that was sort of it. And then they trusted you to, to bring it when you got there. And you, of course, you did. Yeah, I think that, um, thank you for saying that. Um, I, I think that uh, in the beginning of the, in the origin stages, there wasn't a lot, uh, that, that wasn't in, in play yet. So the opening it up part that I was talking about and putting the scripts down wasn't in play yet because we were all trying to figure out what the show was going to be, right? At least the actors were. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was the script, and then it was the audition, and then it was getting it, and then it was the core member of us, and then it was us going to shoot the pilot. That's primarily what I was referring to. Later, as the show would progress, yes, uh, I don't know how the audition experience was for a new for actors who are auditioning for it. Um, but yeah, no, it is interesting, right? When you have to go in to any room, I even still do this because I still audition today. And you just never really know what the culture of the mm-hmm. casting is. So, right, you know? And I think that's a part of being an actor, too. We're not exactly always <laughs> in, on. Like, you know, you never know. it. And also, too, I was going to yeah. say, even the creative team doesn't know. It's like a an um, experiment or, like, we're trying to all kind of figure it out together. This big puzzle that you didn't got to figure out. And once you do, you strike magic. So now I, I chatted with uh, Jim O'Hare from Parks and Rec. He said, oh, his, yeah. he said his cast has a text group chat to this day. <laughs> Is that going on with the Veep uh, oh. cast? Do you all stay in touch? Wow, of course. I mean, we're certainly not. Um, we're not over every weekend at the barbecues or on the, at people's <laughs> pools party. You know, and actually the, the pandemics uh, created a ton of separation for all of us at, yeah. in the world, but uh, including our cast. But I tell you, there isn't a day... That if, you know, I saw any of those guys or girls on the street or we, you know, in fact, we had a Zoom fundraiser. I remember this. The Georgia runoffs. Mini mini reunion, right? It was so amazing. And like, it was like we hadn't skipped a beat. And so that's the relationship that I have and we all have with each other is. And I just, I just actually, I do text Gary Cole. He and I are super <laughs> duper close. I love him so much. I and, love um, the, 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 the Kent and Sue, Kent. love yeah. the will they, won't they storyline, of course. I just got to work with him uh, for a day on uh, NCIS and he was Oh lovely. my God. Yeah. Isn't he great? He's great. Yeah. He's so dedicated and so smart. And he said one of the most stable people in the room. I always loved him. Uh, yeah, with all of the ups I get and downs. Gary Cole was just always a stable in my life. I'm like, Gary, what are we? He's like, let's talk about this. <laughs> uh-huh. I was, in fact, I might even text him today and tell him I was on and, and check in with him. But as far as a group text, we don't have one of those going. But um, you never know if there's a you know reunion or something. Um, you know, I think that we cultivated such a, a close bond during that time because none of us lived in Baltimore Mm, we right. all moved to Baltimore and was like in a dorm. You know, we stayed at the Homewood Suites and by the by, by the docks. And um, we all got to know each other in that very intimate way. And we were able to do that show. So I think that bonds like that don't go anywhere, even when time passes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I understand. So right previous to booking this show, you had, to, is this right that you had, ta- you were taking a little bit of a break from acting, maybe around 2009? You you said in another interview you were working these day jobs in the food industry. Oh by, yeah, which, by the way, you know we all have done our. I did my three years in fine dining and some yeah, catering. You kind of have that. to. I think it comes with the meal of no pun intended. Comes with the meal yeah. of being an actor. You better get your butt out there. It's, there's nothing like human to human contact at a restaurant when you're the help. Nothing, nothing <laughs> like it, absolutely. <laughs> and so, and then this was really interesting because I guess it, while you were sort of working these day jobs, you met actor Omari Hardwick. Omari. 
God, he was my, he's a great gent. Omari and I work together at Universal Studios of all places. They have a food service department and we do these uh, premieres. Our job was to put on these like themed shirts with a bunch of other caterers and go serve premiere parties. So I just remembered working these events with Omari Hardwick. God, that's a great memory you got there. I think in 2006, maybe five. And uh, he would always be do these premieres and he'd be like, God, Sufi, I can't wait till we're on the other side, you know? <laughs> he would pull me aside and say that to me. And I'd be like, yo, Mara, we're gonna be there, like, you know, us. And we, they're like, oh, more cookies, ma'am. I'm like, okay, coming. Uh -huh. But then, um, uh, oh God, Omari's an amazing poet. He's a spoken word artist. And so he had traveled and done and started this, cultivated this great uh, culture at this place called the Greenway Court Theater. It's yeah. owned by Pearson Blitz, and they do the Poetry Lounge every Tuesday to this day. And it's wow. been around since like 1990. It's an open mic. So he was always going there. I'd, he'd always be rushing off, or he'd always be practicing a poem. And I'd be like, Omar, what you doing? I was like a little, his little sister running behind him. Like, what are you doing today? <laughs> and then uh, he's like, oh, I'm doing these poems. And I go, oh, I, I, I got some poems, because I've been writing. I've always had a creative writer in me. I just didn't know it, or I didn't have the confidence for it until much later. But I'd written, I'm actually, I've, written about a good solid amount of like nine really great poems that I would later perform at the Greenway wow. Court Theater. Yeah. And so, but he started me, he really got me, he got me to go over there and he got me to, uh, is, so what if I'm scared, you know? He goes, you gotta get up there and you have to do your work. And and um, and so I went one night after after Universal, after we got off and it was like this, it's like Oz or something. You walk in there, there are all these like beatnik poets and everybody looks so cool. They all are dressed well and they have all these eloquent things to say and me and my little piece of paper and he's like, get up there. <laughs> and I get up there and I read my poem that rhymed, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but, he, but he had said something, I think it was him that told me this Emerson quote, which is, uh, courage isn't the, um, the lack of fear, it's moving forward despite it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And that that's was... Great. That was my experience there. And I go, he's right. And so I really thank Omari Hardwick for giving, for uh, inspiring me by example. And so of course he would later go on. And I remember him getting great movies. Like uh, he got Beauty Shot with Queen Latifah. Mm. And he had gotten, um, God, he was, oh, God, he was in the A-Team, but he was also in the Gridiron Game with Dwayne Johnson. He had got, and he was in this movie with Kevin Costner, uh, the Gar I think it was called The Guardian. And so these movies he was getting, and then it was, he was, his career was progressing and he was always on the big screen and it was before I had booked anything. And I was like, well, you know what, if Amari can do it and then cut to, uh, I would later get a show and, um, and then start booking and some of our other friends, um, would start as well. Uh, and yeah, yeah, that's it. I haven't seen Omari. God, we did a film festival together back in 2013, but I haven't seen him, but this interview is inspiring me to give him a call. Oh, yeah. I, I I like him a lot. And I like things that he has to say also about acting and, and being an artist. And uh, I just loved learning that story about and it's always interesting to know, like, who was hanging out, you know, <laughs> years ago before, just as you said, you know, before the both of you became the big, you know, stars that you are. And I think love hearing the just having somebody say, get up there. And that's what you need. You know, you need someone to just encourage you to take that risk and say, and be there to sort of have your back, you know? Yes, yes, Lovely nothing story. like it. And it's, thank you for, for listening. Yeah, and it's so scary when you think about it, the first time doing something like that. And poetry is different because it isn't um, a script. It's really just actually bearing your soul. 
Yeah. It's like if people reject this, it's them rejecting me. But in, in acting, you can say, well, maybe they rejected the character or the script. But in poetry, it's so your right. your actual heart is on the stage. And it is uh, it's thrilling. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. and speaking of that, and you say things that I think you say beautiful things. One of the things I think uh, I'd read you say was talking about perseverance. Um, and you said, you know, you, you keep plugging away and you talked about a drop of water on a rock does yeah, nothing. Physics. Yeah. The law of physics. I'm a huge believer in it. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's time and pressure is what time that and pressure. Right? right. And I tell that to young students, acting students all the time is, you know, you, you, the one thing that we know we can do is consistently show up. And the mm. law of physics says that if you do show up and you never stop, then it's, mm. it's inevitable that the, the water, the drop of water on a rock will then explode the rock and you'll have a breakthrough but you can't give up and that's the hard part because most of us don't see what's around the corner you know right it's right such could a, be such it a, could be tomorrow yeah yeah it's like vegas your luck could change in any second in the in our careers you know that's right. really but it's honestly just staying there and, and staying at the tables um and when you don't want to despite of it you know and um yeah and I still believe that, and it's a it's a reminder for me every single day. Even as an established, accomplished actor, mm -hmm. I still have to keep showing up. And now I'm I'm venturing into into writing. I've written a short that I'm hoping to shoot by January. So with that, it's now then me remembering the lessons that I had learned as an actor. Yeah. So now it's the beginning of a new chapter. Congratulations on that. And I know Thank you've you. talked about this is a new phase in it, that you're or something that you're starting to expand into more. And, you know, have you you've spent so much time in theater. I think you had gotten your start in theater at age 14. Is that right? Yes, you started, that is okay. correct. Yeah, it was my very first, very first acting class was at the age 14. And I didn't know my, you know, my, my eye from my elbow. And I'm just like sort of turned my entire back was <laughs> to the stage. To, to like the audience as I'm delivering this huge like sort of you know monumental monologue and my teacher Sharon was like oh that was pretty powerful I wish we could have seen you uh, <laughs> and I was like and then just you know yeah so 14 the technical yeah. aspects of things are always whether it's stage or film it's all different and somebody was talking on here I can't remember who was talking about like you got to stick your tummy out you got to always think in terms of like your tummy you can sort of with such such a funny idea, but it's like if your tummy is facing the audience, you're okay. Um, huh. Huh. That's but, a uh, smart one, yeah. <laughs> I suppose so. And so, um, but I guess I was going to ask, did you ever, uh, with your writing, because I know you've been writing all along the way, did you ever write a, a short play? Did you ever take a, your sh take a shot at writing a play? Because I've never, I think I did oh, maybe gosh. once in college, but plays are their own thing, right? They are completely different medium. Yeah. yeah plays, let's see. I was just reading but before, poetry, after, not... after the fall by Arthur oh. Miller. Um, I just, yeah. I'm reading that right now. It's funny you would ask, should ask that, but uh, cause in it, the way in which it's written is completely different, obviously than poetry, which is more, there aren't as many rules. It's, uh, the only rule of poetry is put the words on a page so you can recall them and that's it <laughs> and, and tell the truth. I mean, oh, I like that. Those, yeah. those are just the two rules. And then, well, obviously with plays is completely different blocking entrance, exit, mm. It's, well, Arthur Miller was a genius mm -hmm. at this stuff, and yeah. I'm just reading his plays. And so, and then with, but no, but I wrote a short film, but no, I had never tried my hand at writing a play. Had you? Did you say that that's something I, that you did? 
I, tr I think I tried writing one play when I was in college and, uh, or maybe I tried to write a few, but I don't think I got very far. I've written feature scripts, but, oh, and, wow. and pilot scripts and things, but, you know, and I've taken meetings on those sorts of things, but, uh, you know, I think it really, uh, you know, I'm impressed, a good story and then putting, and then loving it and caring about it so much that you inspire other people when you explain it and then getting it to the hands of people who are going to help you make I mean, the, the whole process to me i am in awe of everybody who gets their project made really or yeah i'm in awe of anybody who writes a script uh any anything above that to me is just like seems incredible so you know i'm i'm a fan of writers definitely yeah no i appreciate you saying that i mean it's nice to hear you talk that way because it is definitely um a lot of steps tremendous amounts of steps and like you and I have acted for a while but I haven't you know been a professional writer I, I only last year wrote this short and but I have been writing poetry for years and years yeah. so those are two different mediums same part of your heart but like two different mediums for sure and I applaud them anyone who can get their script done as well it's it's definitely different it's you know you you know like you were saying you one has to speak with passion about their their story Right. And really, and I'm lucky because I wrote a story that I really believe in. It's about a single mother. It's based upon my mother, and mm. it's a um, it's a sort of an as if you know, it's a single mother and daughter story, yeah. traveling and the love between mothers and daughters, or the lack thereof, and the, just the relationship. Mm. It's so convoluted and nuanced that relationship. And I'm yeah. exploring that, and I had you know that with my mom, and so I can talk passionately about that because God, it's so close to me. And right. so, yeah, like you said, I think I would encourage uh, writers to certainly just write something they know. But mm. for me, the, the reason that I wanted to write, and I, and I suppose the reason I started even writing poetry way back in, way back then in like 1999 was because I had something to say. Yeah. So I really wanted to talk about this thing and I wanted people to hear it. And like you said, it could challenge people's perspective. It also can enlighten them. Um, I read a quote once from a writer. It said, we write so that we can tell people how we can express emotion. We can show people what what emotion looks like. People who may not be able to express emotion, actors have the same task too. And That's so right. it's the arts of it, um, and yeah, it's staying fueled. You're right. Writing can do so much for people. I mean, look at the millions of stories that we have there. And God, I go into a dark theater and I'm transformed. It's like that Nicole Kidman thing at the AMC. Like that's that's how I feel. <laughs> right. <laughs> the iconic exactly moment. I, her the so iconic, iconic Nicole Kidman AMC thing. She, she's so right. You know, <laughs> she goes somehow heartbreak feels okay in a place like this. You know, and uh, it's just so it's so poetic and it's just it, it touches me every yeah. single time. So there you go. Right. That's writing and the whole creative process. So nowadays you have over fifty different television and film credits to your name, including oh appearing on such shows as you said, Lovecraft Country and The Guest Book and Rosalian Isles, Bones, Prison Break, and films like J.J. Abrams' Star Trek and, did, yeah. and Murder Mystery alongside Murder Mystery. Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler, how fun was that? Was like, that was just, that was a magic moment, like a dream come true. I, um, I currently uh, am on a, a movie called Metal Lords that probably yeah. isn't on that with D.B. Weiss, which is a labor of right. love, which I absolutely love. And he is an encouraging writer as well. And um, I did a movie called Together Together with Ed Helms that also uh, was just remarkable because Ed's like a genius improver. And we just had a, yeah. we had a really great time. 
he at work with Matt Walsh in the Hangover One. Matt played the right. doctor, <laughs> and then um, there's a couple of other really great films. One called Imperial Dreams with John Bodega, which was great. And uh, yeah, I'm actually what I'm really excited about is this one movie coming out called Little Dixie that I got to star opposite Frank Grillo. Right, and Eric Dane and Annabeth Gish, and yeah, yes. great cast. I mean, and a thriller. And I know. A crime I know. Thriller, I'm, yeah. Different was, genre. Yeah, I I think actors should encompass all kinds of genres. Our you, you know job is to. That's what we want to do. We want to do, right? We don't want to do just one thing. We do it and then we say, I'll show you what else I can do, right? Yeah, because we've got the training for that. And I think so often, you know, hey, look, I count my blessings every day that I get a job doing anything and acting. So, of course, I'll take comedy when it comes to drama. But I do believe that um, an actor's job is to live truthfully under imaginary circumstances. Right? That's like what Meisner said. And so if that's the case, we're then supposed to, not supposed to, but I like to have all of the areas taken care of. The the romances and the comedies and the dramas. and Because all of that is life, right? If, if art is imitating life. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. I, yeah, but we do. I'm so grateful for the, uh, for the comedi- comedian. <laughs> I never saw myself as a comedian oh, back you're, you're when I was in college. I never thought that. You, when you were, why was it, were you, did you find yourself, did you take yourself... <laughs> Or did you see yourself as being kind of a more serious person when you were in college? Yeah, I did, actually. Yeah. I, I think that our teachers fostered that as well. We're doing Moliere, or we're doing Shakespeare, right. we're doing all of, like, Mamet. We're doing, right. uh, you know, Hedda Gabler. So you got these really way heavy three-act plays where we're all sort of dressed in, you know, period pieces. And, yeah, we were... We were a little brooding and you know, you know, not and and that's so nice. Sometimes a mix is great yeah. to be able to just go laugh with a bunch of your friends and 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 you know, have it be a job. And it's just remarkable. So I'm just so grateful right now to have both of those and to have it all. And I'm looking forward to more of it. I do think younger actors we can be a little um, hard on ourselves, right? Like we think that if we're not sort of crying or something, that we're not really acting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. At least I was like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, there's a very famous, I remember, I don't know how famous this is, but she's famous. Edie Falco said um, about when she would read, Car- you know, like when she was doing Sopranos, she would read in the script, it said, uh, Carmela cries. Mm-hmm. And she would say to herself every time she'd go, it's never going to happen. <laughs> well, why was that? I think that she just felt, I don't, I couldn't presume at all, but it, to me, it struck me as like, oh, that sounds to me like it's like you see that and you're like, well, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't happen. <laughs> Let's you know see how I mean? it goes Let's on the see day. How it goes. And then on the day, it's like this thing happens wh- and I agree with you. I, like, I completely understand that. Now, I have not been, I have not, never had a career in which, you know, the, the majority of the roles that I'm either auditioning for or playing are characters that need to cry. They aren't. My characters are silly, quirky guys, you know. But uh, certainly in college, there were those opportunities. And yeah, you're hard on yourself if you don't get there, you know. And yeah. um, you know, I think it, part of it. I did much. I did a lot of singing in college, and I sort oh. of look at it like the same, where it's like you know that when you're singing, do you do sing? Do you do you sing? Oh, I sing. I sing. Yeah, I'm yeah. such a funny person. I love to sing. I have like, if you check out my Instagram, I'm singing like Bruce Springsteen songs. 
<laughs> I'm not saying I'm great at it, but I absolutely love to sing. And this, the the the, the story that I wrote called um, "Amazing Grace," it's about a singer. Mm, mm. So oh, um, great, yeah. But music was always in my home. It was always Motown, and it was always like my mm. mom was so great at making sure that we always knew we were so music, musically like educated. Um, but so you sang was that musical theater? Yeah, I did a I did a fair amount of musical theater when I was in college. Um, I did about two years where I focused on that, and and um, you know you'd get these songs where there'd be that high note, and uh, you know of course on the day it's like you got to really take care of your voice, just make sure you can hit that note, and you know most of the time what I would find is that in performance you'd hit it because you have to hit it because. Mm-hmm. Because there's that audience, and I think that, you know, you have, hopefully you have a good sort of technique going. And I would say this kind of, to me, I feel like would apply with acting as well. Or it's like you've got your technique and adrenaline on the day. It's going to happen because it has to happen. Yes, I agree with you. I also think, too, it's uh, practice. Practice, practice, right. practice so that time is right. so it's like muscle memory absolutely. or riding a bike, right? So then you're absolutely right. Once you've practiced and you've done all that. They said what Michael Jordan did with 300 free throws mm-hmm. a day. like So he knew maybe if he wasn't in the zone or maybe he's sick that day, he can still do it because he's practiced it. Yeah. And yeah, I agree with you. I think if supported with the practicing and the rehearsal of it all, when you hit the day, it'll be there. You've got to trust yeah. that it'll be there. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, that's a great thing you said about singing. You know, you got to hit the note. Something in you just goes, it has to happen. You I know, it, you know, um, so well, I'm looking forward to my opportunity when I get to play the husband who is accused of killing their spouse and they, they, <laughs> they and they're cornered and they have they have to snot cry or whatever. I, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm I'm, I'm it's waiting. It's coming. The night's still young. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, Sufi, this this has been so great. And um, yes. you're you're such a fantastic actor and artist and a wonderfully thoughtful human being. And um I have huge admiration for the ways in which you look at life and how you meet challenges that we deal with along the way. You, you know, thank you for spending this time with me today and chatting. Yeah, you're very welcome, Claude. This has been amazing. It's been great to get to know you as well. Um, you're amazing, amazing and an inspiration. And I think this is awesome to just be reminded of our journeys. And it's also yeah. amazing and always fabulous to talk to a fellow actor. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Sufi Bradshaw. A big thanks again to Sufi for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with folks like Beth Reisgraf, Susie Abramite, Darwin Shaw, and Gil McKinney coming in the next couple weeks. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Baron Vaughn, Joe Tippett, Sarah Paxton, Chantal Tui, Christine Woods, Patrick Adams, Leonard Robinson, and more. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And you can check out our link tree to get some of our merch. Our link tree is on Instagram at things are going great for me. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five-star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings, reviews, and kind words, and we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Tona to You. We chat about taking class together at the Groundlings and working on the same play in two different iterations. Tona to You is also inspiring in his speaking about a range of subjects, including linguistics, gender, and art. Here now is the super talented, brilliant, and lovely Tona, to you.
class at the Groundlings uh, way back in 2015. Yeah, a long time ago. A long time ago. Um, and I just remember having a great time working with you and learning how to build funny characters. And, you know, you had like an infectious sense of fun. And I just remember like we had a ball uh, being super silly together. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you continue with the classes over there? I didn't, no. Um, I think I jumped around from one class to another class. And God, that was in 2015, right? So I no, I think I went. I started off at Groundlings for a little bit. I made it to their intermediate level. Yeah, and then I took a break to go do an acting class uh, at a different studio. And I think after a certain time with Groundlings, you can't go back. You'd have to start from ground one, like from square zero. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, they passed me as well to the next level or whatever. And I don't know. I should have continued. I honestly don't remember why I didn't. But, you know, um, I was spending a lot of time, I guess, over at UCB. And I think that was, maybe that was a mistake. I mean, I I feel like I should have been studying more at the Groundlings. I liked it a lot. I feel like UCB is sort of more for developing TV writers. Whereas, like, the Groundlings is a bit stronger for developing performers. For characters. For characters. Did you yeah. do any stuff over at UCB? Actually, no, I never have. I've seen a couple of their shows. I have a couple of friends who... Um have made it to a couple of their old, like bigger labs. Uh, but apart from that, no, I've never done it. Okay. And so, uh, let me ask you, so were you still in college when I met you? No, I had been a, a few, like a year or two out. Okay. All right. Yeah. And you had, as I understand it, you studied in the drama department at USC. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I studied in the, you know, uh, the school of dramatic arts. And then I also was studying in the school of cinematic arts. Two separate schools. Most people think that they're the same one. Yeah, well, they have a renowned cinema, uh, program of cinematic arts as well. I mean, so, so what does that mean? What were you doing? What was your emphasis when you were at the uh, School of Cinematic Arts? So uh, for well, I, I got accepted into the School of Dramatic Arts and quickly I came, became aware that it didn't have any correlation with the School of Cinematic Arts whatsoever. And <laughs> uh -huh. uh, the skills that we were learning, albeit great, uh, didn't necessarily complete the education that I wanted for myself. Um, so I came in with so many credits that I was just like, I'm gonna make my own electives. And uh, I was I studied everything. I studied directing, cinematography, editing, um, screenwriting, uh, a lot of critical theory uh, around film. Um, I don't know, I took quite a bit. I even took, and then I also minored in linguistics, uh, studying like the International Phonetic Alphabet, and then I, I really just enjoyed it. Like my brain just really enjoyed it. So I also studied a little bit of forensic linguistics. Uh, I know it sounds so weird. What are you like a big Noam Chomsky fan? Like what is this linguistic stuff? Like what, what, tell me about what is, for, can you tell folks what is forensic linguistics? It sounds okay. like it should be a procedural show on a network. Well, they, they do sometimes uh, include it in some procedural things. But it's uh, a different kind of forensics, right? Forensics, it's not ex excavate, exhuming cadavers. It's a different kind of forensics. It is a different type of forensics. So basically the way that it works is um, our tongue produces phonemes and morphemes, uh, which are sounds basically, uh, in very unique ways. Um, and so you can look at things like voice onset time, which is 
the fric the friction that you get when you begin to speak. And you can also look at the way that your tongue and your mouth instrument is producing R's or L's in different ways. So like there's mm. actually several, many different types of R's. There's like mm. the yeah. R that we have in America, which tends to be a harder R. Um, but then there's something like the Spanish R, which is more of a trill. So like, mm -hmm. um, pero, you know, uh, which is a lighter tap with the tip of your tongue. Uh, and so, and then there's like other ones in other languages, like in Hindi, et cetera, et cetera. So when a kidnapper or a murderer or someone in the world sends you a voice note and they're trying to mask their voice with like one of those machines, they can mask the pitch, they can mask the tone, they can't mask the formation of the letter of the words, of the phonemes. And so some linguistics are able to just delve in there and be point out like, oh, they're probably from the Midwest. And then by combining like the R's, the L's and the vowels, they're like, they're not just from the Midwest, they're probably from this region. Uh, that's incredible. Now that would, I mean, like in terms of, I don't know, like acting work, I feel like that would come in handy when, when building characters with, I, I guess, specific regional American accents or international accents, I suppose. But why, why are you, why are you a nerd for this? Otherwise, <laughs> what are the other practical applications in terms of like, what is the career for this? If somebody was doing this uh, on, on, on its own? If they were just studying forensic linguistics, I think they can go into being a police officer or being a detective. Um, it would be like oh additional and well, it'd be additional information for them to do their job. Right. And oftentimes forensic linguistic people um, are used as professionals in court cases. So if at any point like they like in America, you're innocent until proven guilty. Right. And so you need to create evidence enough to, to convince a judge and a jury that someone is guilty. And so by having a forensic linguistics, they can show the science behind why the voice note is attached to this person. Okay. <laughs> it's yeah. incre it's incredible to me, but it's such a curveball that I don't know where to go with this. Like, I think it's so cool that this was interesting to you. And, you know, and, and listen, having folks on here, I, I think it is more rare that I've had somebody talk about a subject that is not related uh, maybe explicitly to um, an arts education. And, you know, I don't even think I've had that many people on who have said like, oh, well, I was working as a... Well, I've had some people who were working as like they were going to be surgeons or they were going to be uh, a, a, a software engineer. And then at some point they were like, this is terrible. <laughs> it's not filling my soul. I'm going to do acting, you know. But um, to have this, uh, you know, interest in developing this as a minor while you were studying in the arts is a really fascinating thing. And it speaks, I think, a little bit, seems like it speaks a little bit to maybe who you are. Are you just a sort of a naturally uh, intellectually curious person? Yeah, I mean, I just like, how can you not be when someone tells you that there's a way of finding criminals with sound? Like, I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, team, tell me more. Like, it's just a, I think one of the skills of acting that I think I really enjoyed that, and I'm glad, grateful that I developed was just a, a hunger for curiosity and asking why. Um, I don't know if it'll ever be helpful 
in my career as an actor. I do think that like when learning accents, the International Phonetic Alphabet was like a fun tool to help me yeah. do that. But because it creates distinctions in your mind that you can then use to recreate someone. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just fun. It's just like I, I'm weird. Like I like I have a friend who's an occupational therapist. Um, do you know what occupational therapy is? An, an OPT. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, uh, OP, OT. An OT. An OT. Yeah. Uh, yes, I am familiar. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she's an occupational therapist for children, uh, and specifically yeah. uh, pediatric occupational therapies, uh, emphasis on food therapy. And on food like, therapy. On food therapy. And I was like, what does that mean? And so she was just telling me about her life. And she basically said that there are children who are very picky eaters. And so she works on how to make them not picky eaters. And so oftentimes parents will force feed their children or try to get them to um, try, like force them to try new things. And they get frustrated and they create conflict. And she said, uh, globally, force feeding someone is a form of torture. Okay, sure. Yeah. And so you are traumatizing your child by forcing them to try different types of food. What's why not introduce food in ways and treat food differently so that the child would engage with them on their own? Children are naturally curious. And so, yeah, why don't you have them cook with you? They'll tell them it's not for them. Oh, I was going to say, you know, just leave it outside there, leave it around the house in strange places for them to find it. And then they discover it. <laughs> what is this? Like just on the floor somewhere or, you know. Exactly. Um, and they'll play no, with this it, is, they'll taste it, you know, this whatever. Is, this, is good, this is a wonderful idea. So sort of getting them involved with the food preparation and, and, and that sort of thing. Well, you know, we over here, we have we just uh, started a garden here in our backyard. And the, uh, the kids are really excited about that and watching the, the whole process of the food growing. And of course, it's all vegetables. So I do think like that has been a really fun and organic way to watch them uh sort of uh you know get a little bit more i guess veggies in their day because it's like I, they feel ownership over like i made this you know mm-hmm. and this grew out of the ground you know uh, but the but relationship a- too is different and yeah. so like the yeah. same thing with like with with acting and stuff like i don't know the more you expose yourself to things that you don't know the more curiosity you have to it then there's a sense of ownership that you have over the same material yeah there's a sense of knowingness like i don't know yeah it's just yeah. a curiosity that you've developed, and I've developed. I, I love years. this. I love. I love uh, the way your mind is working, and I'm. I'm. I'm not shocked that you're. You're. You're an interesting soul, and so let me ask you this. So then, when you were at USC in the on the in the drama side of things, in the mm-hmm. dramatic arts program, um, we've had a few other guests on this podcast who did that program. Uh, Patrick Adams is one that is coming to mind. What, what was the emphasis over there in terms of the acting technique? Is it more of a sort of Strasbourg-based program, or was it Meisner, Adler? Was it a kind of a mix of styles? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you're making the assumption that most of the listeners have any idea what this pedagogy is. But... Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't give a shit. I don't, oh, give, don't a give a shit. shit. No, no, I don't. If somebody is listening to this podcast, like, they, they, they will catch up. You know, like, it, they're listening for a reason. I, I don't think that we have forensic linguistics tuning into yeah, this exactly. show. If they are, they are welcome. But, yeah, it's, a, there's, it's very inside baseball. Do you want a Uda? <laughs> what do you yeah. want? A hogging, bitch. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, so uh, full transparency, I wasn't in the BFA program. I was in the BA program. So I think, I think that the BFA program in the years that I went there, can't speak to it now because I think they've gone, they've done a whole facelift of the program, but 
the BFA program was more structured and they had very, very like set classes that everyone took. They took Shakespeare, they took classics, et cetera, et cetera. With the BA program, I found it to be rather lazy when I was there. Okay. It was just like, here's some stuff. And there were, here's some acting coaches that you can go to, but each acting coach had their own style, their own understanding of the how things worked. Um, wonderful professors. I think that they really worked hard on getting some great adjunct professors. Hmm. But there, there seemed to be a lot of, uh, the BA program felt like a lot of historical contexts for theater as and performance as like a study mm-hmm. um and the impracticum stuff was your electives as opposed to the bfa program where the impracticum stuff was your emphasis and the historical context was your general ed um so it was your, a little bit of a different general approach. ed yeah when you say impracticum, that's a word that I have to that I am not as familiar with. Can you talk more about what do you mean by what does that stand for? Oh, that's just Latin for in practice. In practice, so basically your conservatory style classes. It's, it would be the difference between like um, learning Meisner from a book versus practicing Meisner in a play, like in your yeah. rehearsal process for a play, and so. Yeah. In the theater BA program, they, we weren't guaranteed performances. We'd have to audition or create our own shows, and even then funding was kind of hard to come across. Yeah. And that's when I was just like, yeah, this program isn't going to work for me, but I'm already here, so I might as well like do what I need to do to graduate and then fill in what I need for my own educational purposes. Well, you know, what's interesting is like I remember, speaking of Uta Hagen, like, we had a family friend who, when I was uh, applying to different programs, they, they were kind to tell me uh, – they were a family friend who uh, worked a lot in uh, entertainment as an actor. And they just said, like, you know – uh, don't you don't need to go to NYU? Try to go to a this sort of like go to Columbia and then study with my friend Uda. And I just, you know, I just like really was excited to go to NYU, and I was like, no, I think I'm just gonna go, go to NYU. And then I remember my sophomore year uh, at college, an article in the you know in the obituary came out for Uda Hagen, and mm-hmm. reading that and going like, oh, I guess that didn't you know. But I never would have met my wife if I hadn't gone to NYU. I mean, a lot of things. Oh, yeah. We make choices and it influences our lives, you know? Yeah. So anyway, there there you go. That's why I have a podcast now. (laughs) Because of Uta Hagen. Because of Uta Hagen, who I love. And, like, she's one of my favorite practitioners. I find her to be one of the most sort of practical uh teachers of acting and um you know i love all of the the exercises that she provides and the questions that you can ask yourself about the the character and stuff like i love her uh, style but what well, i'm usually gonna, yeah oh, go ahead. for it sorry well i was just gonna say like usually when people ask me like what 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 do i recommend for people to take or stuff like that i always i just say what's your problem because like everyone has yeah. a different yeah. style so like Sure, Stanislavski revolutionized the, our, under, our cultural understanding as to how to do scene analysis and um, work on naturalism. Mm-hmm. But then his protégés after him, who all claimed to have the answer, had their own problems. Like Meisner was a shell of a human being with no emotional capacity whatsoever. So his whole lesson was how to break through that. And so when you go to him... Yeah. You're going to be crying and thinking about your most traumatizing moments in life, et cetera. <laughs> oh, is that Strasbourg? No, that was Strasbourg. That feels like Strasbourg, yeah. It was Strasbourg, not Meisner. Strasbourg. Um, but then someone like, 
I don't know, uh, Adler was a gregarious big personality. Sure. Um, I don't know about gregarious, but big personality. She had a giant personality. Owned a room, yeah. Owned a room, but had to learn how to control her body because she was constantly flailing all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Or so I've read. But you know, have you ever seen the? I'm sure I've brought this up on this podcast, but have you ever seen her get mad at Mark Ruffalo on YouTube? No, I want to see the. Oh, oh it's incredible because he comes in with to. He's doing a scene for her, and he's wearing. I guess he's wearing a bathrobe. He's wearing some kind of a robe, but it's like a bathrobe or something, and it's not. I don't know what. It's not a period. Uh, costume bathrobe. I don't know. It's not period. You know, it's like, and sh- and he gets a little, a bit, f- a, a little flippant with her because she's like, you know, what are you, basically it's like, what are you wearing? And he's like, it's a, it's a bathrobe. And she's like, well, what are you, you know, why, why did you, where did you find? And he's like, I stole it. Like he thinks he's being cute. And the class laughs. And then she just eats it, eats him alive <gasps> uh, in front. And he's like, you know, I apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's, it's humbling. And I, I still love Mark Ruffalo, despite it. It's it's a, it's just it's, it's actually endearing to see him in a position of being, uh, uh sort of like <laughs> disciplined. But Stella was you, you can watch her stuff, folks, on on YouTube. So like when I say like everybody's got to catch up or whatever, I you I have the I assume that folks are tuning in because they have a general interest in the arts already. But when we do mention. Anything that gets mentioned on here, just go to YouTube or go to Google and, and Google some of these names, and you'll, I'm sure you'll find things that are in, incredibly inspiring. That was one of them. Did you ever, were, were, did you read a, an Adler book? What was your relationship with Stella Adler in terms of the teaching? Yeah, I just like, I enjoyed, I, I like to steal a little bit from everyone, you know? Yeah, I and, do too. Mm-hmm. Like, why not? Um, mm-hmm. So in college and post-college, um, I would read a lot and then practice things with friends. Um, I read Strasburg, Adler, Hagen, Michael Wilson, who is a, currently a coach here. I was in his master class for four or five months. Um, I went with, I was at Anthony Mandel studio for oh, yeah. four or five months. I was at cool. uh, Howard Fine studio for four or five months. Um, Anthony Mindel came up in my Instagram feed recently and I've never taken one of his classes, but he was saying, you know, it's like he was one of those sponsored posts and something that he said that I thought was, uh, I agreed with, I I don't know, it just actually just made me think, which was he was talking about the breakdowns that you, that go out to mm -hmm. on a particular character. And he was like, those are for the, those are for the agent. They're not for you. You can, you don't even have to pay attention to them. It's just the agent to go like, okay, who's my person that's like the this guy or whatever or this person. But for you, the actor, when it says like plucky, like you don't have to give a shit about it. And I thought that was I loved that. Right. Um, so you so you were seeking out these other acting program or classes outside of your college program or after you graduated from school. Um, now, you then at some point and by the way, you're born and raised in L.A., Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, was it your intention to stay in LA and go to school here? And did you want to be close to family, or did did you look at programs and classes around you know the part different parts of the country? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, yeah. So I had applied to different like my parents were immigrants, and so I was their you know little translator, a little doctor, a little 
whatever. Uh, and so I, I, well, to be honest, like I never really thought about going to college. I, it wasn't something it was in, in my route, my, my sphere of knowing that was like a possibility for me. And weirdly enough, even my own counselor, like when I told her that I was interested in going to college, uh, despite having a 4.8 GPA and the really oh high gosh. SAT score, wow. she said, you can go to a community college first, which there's nothing wrong with that. But like right. the imposing of possibility onto someone uh-huh, limits uh-huh, uh-huh. what you think is possible, right? right and so right. Uh, I got into UCLA with like a full ride to go Holy and study shit. political science. Wow. And then my English teacher in high school just basically said, but you love acting. You Why aren't you pursuing that as a career? And I literally looked at him and I said, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't and, know? So were you, were you doing no. a lot of high school theater and... That yeah, yeah. Of, you must have been. I, and you I, didn't, nobody at the high school was like, which no. performing arts program are you going to apply to? No. Because it oh, wasn't a thing. Shit. Like, it, like for my, that's not a possibility. Okay. You know, like no one's, no one was doing that. And like, I, I yeah. granted, like I was in majority of the school plays, like either a lead or whatever. I was president of the drama club. Um, there's local colleges that host high school theater competitions, like DTASC mm-hmm. or, uh, Long Beach Community College, Fullerton College, et cetera. And I'd won a couple of those um, competitions, but like it never, literally, I, I don't know if it's just I feel so stupid, but it, it never crossed my mind until that moment where he asked, well, why not do this? So I auditioned for USC and I auditioned for Juilliard. Uh, and you did? Begged. You did the Juilliard audition? Well, because again, I had such limited, I didn't even know what drama programs were good. But that takes incredible courage. Because the Juilliard, it's it's one of the most historically intimidating auditions. Did you did you fly to New York for it? I flew to San Francisco. They had a okay, okay. They had both. How did that go? It went good. I think it went well. I don't. Don't think... they eliminate rounds of people in the same day? Yeah. Jesus Christ! And how many monologues did you have ready? Uh, I think I had four. Yeah, uh, yeah. One a. Uh, Classic, comedic, dramatic, contemporary, comedic, dramatic. At that, uh, and ten, then at that tender bars. age, it's like, you know, because even if it, if somebody said like now, like, can you prepare four monologues? I'd be like, oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, sure. That sounds like, you know, what a fun afternoon. Um, but when you're at a tender age, it's like every one of those monologues, you're still kind I mean, at least for me, at even at the age of 18, I had started, I had worked professionally already as a child, but like still, I was still trying to, I was hanging on for dear life. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing with anything. Yeah. Acting wise. I, it was all instinct. It was all, I remember like, you know, it's like when you do one of those like musicals when you're a kid and it's, if there's an adult audience, there's sometimes there's like a reference to somebody like Noel Coward, you know, and it's like you. Who's referencing Noel Coward anymore? Oh, you know, if you go back to like Anything Goes or something, it's like there's a reference to somebody like Noel Coward, and it's like as a child, it's like you say Noel Coward, and the and the adult audience laughs, and you're like, you have no idea why. Yeah. But you just remember that they laugh, so then then you're like, aha, so 
just the previous, then I would just lean into, no coward. And then the audience would roar with laughter. And then, of course, they're also going like, this is cute because it's a kid. Yeah, because you have no idea what the fuck he's saying. Right. So, but I, so what I mean, so what I mean to say is like by the age of 18, it's like you're barely still trying to figure out, you know, I was talking to somebody else about doing Shakespeare at this age. It's like, how can you, how do you do Romeo and Juliet at the age of 18 or younger? When you have no idea what it is to like be in love, or maybe you do, but like, can you articulate it? Can you use the poetry of Shakespeare and 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 channel it? I mean, that takes a very, very special person who has that kind of self awareness. I think you know. So let's go back. To, let's go to that. I guess were you a self aware actor at that and artist at that age? I think so, to a, to a certain degree. Like, I spent, I mean, I grew up in a beauty salon, so oftentimes I spent my childhood listening to people talk about their divorce or talking <laughs> about, like, oh my how, God. like, their partner cheating on them or whatever. I mean, it's, like, very... Wow. That was the culture, you know? And so I think that I wasn't... I, I wasn't, like, ignorant of those things, but I think that I didn't have the... I think the thing that I lacked was... I could have used more discipline because okay. I, the, I, over the years I've discovered that my attention span uh, is a little hard to control. And so I've created systems now as an adult to really like help me there and to like help me <laughs> succeed in those things. But as a child, like I think that I was, or as a teenager, I was constantly like wanting to do the best and be the best and like, and, and help. And, and I was a people pleaser. And so um, I could only get so far. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. but the auditions went well. I mean, they were, it, it was pretty brutal. It was pretty cold. It was, I think that they don't particularly foster the like nicest environment for people to audition. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's not um, like at, over, well, you don't know UCB, but over at UCB, they'll, they give you a big, uh, a send off when you go to do your auditions there. And those are intense auditions, but yeah, I think I had heard at Juilliard, they do have former students there or students who are already in the program that are there with you. But I don't know if that's true for the San Francisco leg of the tour. You know, I, I honestly don't even remember it very much. I just remember um, this was the biggest ask that I had ever made of my mom. Uh, oh, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was again, she she was she was a, an immigrant and like wasn't making very much money. And I begged her to fly me to San Francisco with her for an audition like it's a beautiful thing it was a beautiful thing um and then we ended up seeing wicked because it was the touring company was happening there amazing and yeah. i remember seeing like uh the performance of um wonderful uh-huh uh and just thinking man that old man <laughs> he probably looks not that old but that like actor has probably seen so many fun stories and has lived such a fun life and he's probably like, he just loves what he does. He just looks so happy. Mm. And I was like, I want to be that guy. Mm. Yeah, that's sweet. I thought that I used to think when I would see, if I was getting to see a show on Broadway or something, I would always look at the very, like, charactery folks. You know, the guys who would sing uh, the feud for Tin Horns in Guys and Dolls. And I, like, wanted to be one of those people they, because <laughs> they just seemed fun. Show business was fun, you know? Um, and. It, in Hollywood, it can be fun. It feels a little more tense here a little bit. And I think part of that is what you were talking about previously about that sort of like fast moving train thing. Not that that doesn't exist on Broadway. That does there as well. But like, but I, that 
thing that you're talking about, like just watching that actor just kill it in in a regional production of um, of a very well written show and just seeming like having a great time. And I, I that is a huge thing for me too. Just I liked meeting. I, I thought actors were funny and interesting and empathetic and different than other people. And because I started working when I was a younger person, it's like the conversation was better <laughs> than what I was getting <laughs> at school, you know? Um, so in any case, so then you come out of USC, you, um, you then, so then after, and after we took this class together at the Groundlings, I guess you fell in at some point with some of my fellow NYU alums over at I Am a Theater Company. Oh, yeah. And I've interviewed uh, I Am as artistic director Stephanie Black. I interviewed I've seen her, her today. Year. Are you? Oh, please tell her. Please tell her hello. Okay, I will. Folks should check out her interview in episode 19. It's a great interview. LA theater folks in particular should definitely have a listen. And I understand. So you did two productions with I Am a Theater Company, um, yeah. I think, including John Karen's play uh, Canyon when it was known as uh, uh, the, the House, House that Jake, Jake built. built. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I went on. To, funnily enough, I went on to understudy Jake in the premiere of Canyon when it was the co-production of with uh, I Am a Theater Company and the Latino Theater Company. Oh no way! Yeah, it's a great play. Uh, I'd wish I'd gotten the chance to see you do it or had done it maybe with you would have been super fun um how did you meet the iama folks oh uh that was an audition yeah uh they so uh they were producing john karen they were doing a workshop of john karen's play and it was formerly known as the house that jake built yeah and i did a self-tape for it they were looking for like a 17 year old latino Mm -hmm. person yeah and um they they hired me off the self tape and it was great. I hadn't done theater. Like I was so hungry to, to perform like it, like after college, um, I got into this, I got a day job and I, it was a startup at a tech company and it was 60 to 70 hours a week. And there was just no, there was no life after that. And so, um, I, I asked to lower my hours once the company had more legs and, uh, took on this play and, I just, it was fun. I mean, it was a workshop. And I think that uh, the first day at the table read, it was at Katie Lowe's house and mm-hmm. uh, Shapiro like got uh, Girl Scout cookies for all of us because they <laughs> not, came and knocked Oreos. at their door. I know Oreos uh, are his usual favorite. Yeah, They are usually his thing. <laughs> uh, well, now pretzels. Now pretzels. But um, yeah, John Karen like started off the circle with, um, he wanted to empower the actors to dialogue with him over uh the characters and to like really like take ownership over the characters and play with it and i think because of my um i because i come from the undocumented community and the play dealt with undocumented issues there was a certain level of ownership that i felt over like um like a protection of the community Mm -hmm. And because of my history with like USC and like with taking screenwriting classes and directing classes, one of the things that I learned there is like casting has so much to do with the story and like the social impacts that any story has. Yeah. And I remember I was just, I was such, I was so cocky and John, forgive me if, if this ever offended you, but I remember uh, after the end of it, he's like, does anyone have any questions? And I raised my hand and I said, yeah, I'm really curious as to why my character's IQ is so low. 
Mm, okay. Yeah. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, just because he's from the hood doesn't mean he has to be dumb. Right. And he's like, oh. And I was like, yeah. I mean, like, I understand that the dad doesn't have a, a formal education, but the child can. And he can recognize that the dad's being abused and, like, want to stand up for him. And it integrated into the development of the character later on. That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, that, that, I think that, I yeah, that's, that's interesting that you say that because... On its surface, when when I when I got to the script, it what it didn't read that way. Um, there was a certain level of like, why not, you know? And yeah. John Karen was really gracious enough to like lean into that and really changed the world to, I guess, kind of not necessarily adapt to me, but to he took the note, which was very gracious of him, and I didn't realize how is, yeah. <laughs> how taboo that is. <laughs> <laughs> at the time well it can I'm, i would imagine that it's quite charged it's a charged thing you know you know uh you you're, you could risk alienating yourself then within a creative community within a creative team i mean any any time that somebody has an issue period it's usually kind of fraught with like well how do you bring it up <laughs> you know am i going to be made to feel um uh like an imposition for having voiced something and um uh you know at the end of the day though john was smart uh and thoughtful to to consider what you were saying and you know it is a collaboration yeah i saw the performance when it was at latc um and i think the actor i forget his name but he did a phenomenal job and i like it was really nice because i think uh, the impact of that character having a stronger IQ paints the community in a different light, you know, then, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think that it really, I think, I also think that it worked. Yeah, it did. It did work. Um, of course it did. And so, and then I'm not sure of the timeline here and what followed what, but at some point you appear in uh, another play by playwright Boney B. Alvarez. Oh yeah. Fixed at, the Echo Theater Company, and um, so what was what was first? Was it fixed or was it those Iama shows? It was the Iama shows. Okay, because there's some overlap there with the creative team on fixed and some of the ensemble at Iama, correct? Yeah, yeah. So basically, what happened was um, uh, I did a show at the LGBT Center first, and that was a show uh, called "Hit the Wall" by Ike Holter, directed by Ken Sawyer. Uh, phenomenal show that was like they you could pay me nothing <laughs> and you could you could make me like an understudy who, who never goes on and I would do that show again <laughs> like it's I culture's writing is phenomenal and then because of that uh we ran for six months and because of that someone recommended me for the I am a thing I, I got the audition sent it in did those the the two shows with them and then Anna Madrid yeah uh, who's a member of I am a uh but before good that, actor, a very phenomenal actor yeah, yeah. has a company called Put Me on Self Tape that is yeah phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, highly recommended for those who are looking for self tape stuff. Uh, plug. <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But she auditioned for the Echo and was just like, "Yo, there's a role in here that I think that you could just smash." And so I somehow got the audition, did it. It was written for a Filipino actor because it was a filipino uh what's it called like a lady boy massage parlor okay and 
Boney was in the audition and he liked my performance and he's like, I'm gonna turn the character Mexican. He's gonna be the only, dumb, he's gonna be the only Mexican up in this Filipino thing trying to fit in with the Filipino girls. Um, yeah, so I did it because Anna like recommended it. And because of that play, uh, Anna and Adrian Gonzalez, who's also in, uh, Fixed, uh, and has done some stuff with Iama as well. He, uh, they all, they both knew Tanya Soracho. Right. And so they kept asking her to come. She was writing this television show called Vida and uh, was looking for a gender nonconforming um, person. Hmm. And uh, at the time, like GNC, like that was not, it was like coming into the mainstream consciousness, but it wasn't really there. And like, yeah, yeah. When you met me, I was like 140 pounds. My hair was long. I, People would ask me my pronouns all the time. <laughs> um, and yeah, so she came to the show and then messaged me on Instagram and then said that she wrote oh me a part. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. What a day. What an amazing day. Well, I literally was like, yeah, okay, you wrote me a part. What casting couch are you trying to get me to go to, girl? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm. Had you, but you knew she was. Had well, you I read, knew she was. Yeah. You, had you read, I mean, I remember reading... I've read, I read her play Fade, which I really I found it very affecting in terms of um, cultural identity and issues of cultural visibility and uh, racism in the United States. And then especially how that can intersect with additional layers of classism. It's, it's a great play. And, I, you know, um, you know, so but. She then goes on to write. I mean, she's written a number of plays. Yeah, Mala Yerba. Um, mm -hmm. And then she also was on the show Looking. She wrote on the show Looking and acted in the show Looking. Uh huh. Right. And then so, so then she, right. She she had already been a TV writer mm -hmm. at that point. That's kind of part. That's part of the storyline of Fade. And I think. And then um, she's she goes on to become the creator and showrunner and th of this show and this becomes a glad media award-winning series for stars and you recur uh in the part of marcos zamora for three seasons mm -hmm. very cool huge congratulations on those things by the way i mean it wasn't like it's again this the story's uh it seems like it like was i don't know how like it would how it actually happened was she sends me this Instagram message. What's your agent's information? I wrote you a part. You still have to audition, but it, like I wrote it with you in mind. And I was like, okay, yeah, no problem. It came on. It was a one-day co-star. And I was like, this is my shot. I love this story. I love who this is. Yeah. And again, I, I came across a moment where like I've been really blessed with other creatives who believe in collaboration. John Karen, Tanya Siracho, and Matt Lopez. Um, yeah. And many more. But I walked in there. And I had facial hair for the first time in my life because <laughs> I can't, I couldn't grow it up until that age. <laughs> um, and I had long hair and they wanted this like big femme queen personality. And they're like, you need to shave. The key makeup person said I needed to shave. And I said, why? Yeah. And she said, because you're femme. And I said, there are femme people with facial hair. Right. And he lives in Boyle Heights. And he can't always walk out with all of his feathers out. That's dangerous. And so he needs some sense of armor. And this is my armor. Wow. And mind you, this is a co-star who is saying this. <laughs> I had balls. I don't know why I thought that I could get, like, I thought that that but was that's okay. All, that's all brilliant, though. 
And so she was like, well, then let's talk to the showrunner and see what she says. And I was like, okay, well, let's talk to her. And if she says no, then I'll shave. Mm -hmm. And so I explained my position and Tanya was like, I like it. Let him do it. Yeah. And I was like, really? You know, like, oh, me? Oh, okay. (laughs) And so I just like, I wanted to kill it. I wanted to like, just do it. And I was nervous as hell, but I was like, I know what I'm doing. I know the lines. I can fill in the moment. And I did my best. And then she... I didn't know that this happened, but I later on discovered that she had messaged my co-star, Michelle Prada, and asked her, I'm interested in bringing him on in a bigger role. Do you think he can handle it? And she vouched for me. Hmm. Wow. She vouched for me. And she said, yeah, he's got it. And so she wrote me in as a guest star for the next episode, and then six episodes in season two, and then three episodes in season three with a big culmination of me having the queer signetta, which landed me on the cover of the LA Times. Yes, this uh, is incredible. So then this is, so you become a, a breakout star basically on this show, which leads to this lovely profile of you in the in the Los Angeles Times for this episode that you were just referring to. This is huge. And they delve a little bit into your childhood and and you and ask you I guess about your queer identity. Uh, and your character Marcos um yeah, and so then this this is a an eighties inspired uh, gender bending quote gender bending quinceanera or queer quinceanera. Mm-hmm. Good lord, am I saying that right? By your best by their best friend Lynn, which doubled as the character's thirtieth birthday. It's a lovely and beautiful uh, idea for an episode of television. Are you comfortable sharing with me a little bit about what filming that episode meant to you and? Yeah. And perhaps what it continues to mean for you since it's been a while now, since it aired. You know, I think that the concept of gender is so fascinating to me because from a young age, I I never understood it. Um, hmm. I was always a little bit more feminine and very sensitive. I would kiss people's feet because I couldn't reach their faces. Um, I loved sparkles and colors and I would go to like the McDonald's across the street from my mom's barber's shop or uh and ask for the girl's toy because I had a sister um which I didn't have a sister um I just wanted the dolls Mm -hmm. and I would just tell stories in like the bathtub for hours and I would put on like I remember when my aunt who is this beautiful independent woman making it on her own with a child I always just looked up to women and I remember that she always looked so elegant in her dresses. And so I would sneak into her room and lock the door and put on her dresses and just play. And, but I would get into fight with things. Cause like my mom was like, well, you can't wear nail polish or you can't do this and you can't. And I said, why? Who is saying that I can't do these things? Like who? And I, I've always been a little bit of a fighter, if you couldn't tell from there. <laughs> from, I've always been very opinionated, but I was just like, who the fuck is making all these stupid rules? I don't understand. And so for me, like before filming that episode, I think one of the hurdles of being a performer is getting over your own imposter syndrome and getting yeah. over this need to be liked. Um, That's even harder. It's even harder. And I took these self-development courses that reminded me of the power that story had. And so to me, like, Tanya gifted me my childhood again. 
Mm. So from like I was, and it was my culture. Like I knew what a quinceanera was, and I knew what the traditional look was, and even the conversations that I had with the the makeup department or the um, the costume department or the hair department, I was like, wait, what if we do like the traditional hard 1980s split down the middle, like hairspray it down, some tendrils, like curly tendrils, but like, or like straight tendrils, but curly hair. And like, like the vision, Tanya wrote the vision and like, I was able to fly because of it, Mm. you know? And the, the, the team was just so creative that they trusted me. And I, and I felt confident and I felt ready. And I think before, if I, if I was gifted that at a younger age, I don't think I would have had the gall to tell a producer, you want me to dance for two and a half minutes. I need rehearsal space. I need rehearsal clothes. Mm, I need yeah. a choreographer. I'm not going to choreograph, like choreograph this. Like, right. Um, yeah. yeah, sure. And, and that takes courage because uh, again, not to say that the producer team, Big Beach, and and uh, they're all phenomenal uh, on that set. But I do understand that on other shows, um, if you don't speak up and ask for what you need, people aren't looking out for your back. And so learning how to advocate for your department is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And they want to help you. They want your best performance. But you almost have to teach someone how to get that out of you. That's profound. Yeah, I mean, think like, yeah, I mean, they're trying to do as much as possible with as little uh, time that something would take and as little money as it would take. And I could see a situation where it would just be this vibe of like, all right, go do your thing. And it's like, no, (laughs) you know, and then you're, and I do think like, yeah, that tendency to just be like, to, to, to be pleasing to folks and just say like, oh, okay. I can make it work. And, you know, and particularly actors, I think, are in a position of actors who don't have any kind of status yet or power on their show yet, or they're coming in for a small part on something. It's like, oftentimes you're in a position of like trying your best not to be a problem. And, you know, I like the theme here that in this interview so far about speaking up because uh, I think that's an important one for people to hear. Um, so then you, you go on in this, uh, in this profile, you talk a little bit about, uh, your inspiration, uh, for becoming a storyteller. You speak about a little about changing the way that humanity thinks and how we can treat each other to create a more empathetic and tolerant society. It's a, that's a beautiful sentiment. Um, and I think, you know, it does clearly seem like we are entering sort of a period of more, of that. Of, yeah, more of that. Empathetic yeah. storytelling. It, we're, not so much the breaking bads anymore. It's like more a little bit maybe the breaking goods or, or you know. So, but then there's a show like Succession. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where I don't think there's a single admirable character on that show. But I think that's also a way of creating that world because you're disgusted by that. Uh, it can dis- you can be disgusted by it so long, I think, as you are compelled. You just need to know, I think, why. Why yeah. are they like that? So if you don't have any context for why they're like, then then I don't think it works. But yeah, you can be disgusted by it. Now, my question for you is, um, are you more attracted to, uh, you know, are you, does that interest you in equal measure? 
Are you yeah, more attracted oh to the characters that are inspirations to people, or are you equally interested in showing people characters that can be bad? Are there any Shakespeare villains that you're itching to play? That sort of Oh thing. my gosh. Okay, so yeah, these are great questions. Um, no, I don't care. I want to tell good stories. Is the writing good? Is 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 it compelling? Is there conflict? What are you arming me with? What words can I throw at someone like daggers so that they can feel it in their eye sockets? You know what I mean? Like I want to cut someone up as well as lift <laughs> someone up. I don't care if I'm the villain, if I'm the hero, if I'm the love interest. I want to tell a good story. Now, that being said, um, like Antonio in Promised Land wasn't particularly likable. I mean, there were certain things that were right, likable, right. but it, by the end of it, I was just like, oh, dude, like you're kind of, you're traumatized. <laughs> but, but even that is an, like the conversation that I had with Matt, Matt Lopez, our showrunner was, um, if, if Antonio is going to be a queer villain, what I'm curious to see is how does one become that? Mm. You know, what does being betrayed by your family and exiled by them do to a person and how do they internalize that betrayal and become the betrayer? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it look like when a person lacks shame resilience as defined by Dr. Brene Brown as I am wrong versus guilt, which is I did something wrong, right? Wow. So yeah. what, how, do, how, how does that create a frail exterior? What does toxic masculinity in Mexican American culture look like? What does hubris and colorism come into play in those things. Like that's how my mind works. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that I'm like, oh yeah, give me that. Like I want to play with that. Uh, and then after once that's set, I'm like, let me do whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Let me be nasty. To answer your Shakespeare thing, I would love to play Petruchio. I think that would be so much fun. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. I love Petruchio's that. Petruchio's fun. Mm -hmm. um, Petruchio, Tybalt. Tybalt. Like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I don't know. Wonderful. I mean, wonderful villains of Shakespeare. So, okay, so great. So this shoehorns nicely to this this next section here that I want to talk about, which is then, so after Vita, you go on to star in this ABC network family drama, Promised Land, alongside another hero of the theater, John Ortiz, artistic the director, co-founder of the legendary Labyrinth Theater Company in New York City. Promised Land is an epic generation-spanning drama about two Latinx families vying for wealth and power in California's Sonoma Valley. You play... Antonio Sandoval, one of five mm -hmm. children of the Sandoval family. Uh, and I, as you've spoken about already, a bit of a prodigal son, I suppose. So I saw, well, I first saw no. him. I'm going to change that. I never liked that they called him the prodigal son. The oh, prodigal I don't even son, know what it, What is the prodigal? You know, you, you clearly know words better than I do. What does prodigal really mean? The prodigal son got his, asked for his inheritance, left, wasted it, completely was left ruined and had to come begging back for his father's approval to like, for his father's forgiveness. That's not what happened to Antonio. That is not what happened to him. <laughs> he literally came out, got thrown out of the family and then came back at the behest of his father when his father needed him. It's to the like, prodigal father. It's the prodigal father. Like the father <laughs> was right. the one who has the yeah. tail between his legs. He was that's the victim right. in that. Yeah. That, he no, eventually I, I, became the villain. But because they turned him into such. Don't give me none of that prodigal son bullshit. <laughs> so um, that's what I was thinking about, too, when I was when I was thinking about this question. So uh, so now I first saw John Ortiz back in, I think, 2003. And this was in a Stephen Adley Gurgis play called Jesus Hop the A-Train, which was playing at the theater, uh, the Donmar Theater in the UK. It was an incredible play. 
And there were incredible performances from him and David Zayas, who was also in it, and Ron Cephas Jones, now of This Is Us fame. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was the director of the play. Um, I got to chat with him. It was amazing. Um, John Ortiz threw himself into that performance. I don't know if he's a method actor, but he clearly puts his heart into characterization. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like working with him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just want to acknowledge that... um, I was gifted, like these are master classes. Like each one of these performances are master classes that I like to witness someone in process, whether you get to see the intimate details or not, you see the end product. Mm. And to see how they could like handle themselves on set, how they create an environment. Uh, my hat's off, like before I go into John, like Cecilia Suarez, Christina mm-hmm. Ochoa, yeah. um, Bellamy Young were. The, the giants uh, alongside John, that those are the shoulders that we were standing up on. Because yeah. Katia, Katia Martin, Augusto Aguilera, Rolando Chusa, Ma, and I, and Andres Velez were, this, that was our first show running, or first series lead ever. Uh, and then Mariel and Augusto had some under their belts as well, but like not at this level, not on, at least not on network television. And so like all of us were just kind of, we were all in school. To a certain degree, yeah. Um, John was our number one, and he—I don't know if it's like a theater thing or I don't know where it comes from, but the environment that he set up really created a family, and re- he really advocated for actors in a way that I hadn't seen done in television before. So, for people who are listening and aren't in the industry um, but just love hearing this dialogue, um, rehearsal in theater is usually met with a table read. Thank you, Stanislavski. Uh, literally at the table where the actors, the writers, and the directors sit together and they have convers- They read it through and they have dialogue and they have conversation. Um, some productions spend a few days doing that. Um, some just spend a day. But whatever, that does happen. And that's where all the questions and the intention and what we're trying to create gets sold. Uh, in television, table reads uh, happen for executives. It is for them to hear the script out loud and they may, so that they can submit their notes to the showrunner. And maybe if, it, if an actor has a question or a concern or a comment, they can email the showrunner or ask them in that table read. But it is not a private event. It is 40 to 70 people in audience that you can get fired at if you suck. Mm-hmm. Um, and rehearsal in the theater is time to explore and to look and to look at blocking and to consider things and to ask questions of the director. Yeah, in television, there is no rehearsal. You did that at home, we presume. You come in and your rehearsal's actually blocking. So yeah, try it, why not? Just do it. Oh, that's what you came up with? Great, we're gonna put that there, we're gonna put that there, light it, we're ready, we'll be ready in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. So John Ortiz, when we shot the pilot, texted everyone, hey, I'm gonna read the script out loud, does anybody wanna come? Yeah, and we set up the room. I doing my little homework. I'm a little home overdoer homework person. I was like, okay, this is multi generational. If they came in here in 1986, and I'm roughly around 30, and my sister's around 32, that means I was born in 1992, and she was born in 1990, and then this person was this, and this person was that, and then blah blah blah. And they probably got a divorce around here, and whatever. So like, I came in, and I was like, all right, everyone. So like, I served as dramaturg. I was like, so from like my like Nancy Drewing, here's the list, and I printed it out for everyone. Like here, like. I didn't actually print it out, but that was the energy. And I was like, here's what I discovered. And then John took over and he was just like asking questions and we would read scene by scene. 
and like open it up and we rehearsed like we actually had rehearsal the the 1980s storyline even throughout the project would meet independently of shooting schedule to run the lines and do their work together very rare that that would happen incredibly rare like and everyone was committed in in their own way you know and we it bled over because we were we were filming this during covid and so uh the studio was like we can't do any more table reads uh or any like we're not going to do the big executive table reads but john fought and is like okay well that's fine can we still do a table read just for the actors like this isn't for a show but this is for us to just hear it out loud together mm-hmm. and we did we got approval but the network was like why would we do that it's going to be volunteer. We're not going to pay for that. Right. And all of us were like, yeah, we get that. Thank you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're good. Um, and we would always voluntary, voluntarily invite the writers to come, um, which Matt kind of made it a policy where, like, the writer, he preferred the writers not be there because he wanted it to be an actor space. And the director was also invited. No director said no. Mm. All directors were there. Interesting. And we we're able to navigate problems quicker or sure. questions quicker because when once we were on set that you're good we're good we mm-hmm. let's let's do this baby yeah and john facilitated that really like was strong about it and he he has a reverence for acting like it's sacred to him um yeah and so if the crew was you know like doing the, what the crew does like they're having fun in between takes and whatever if it was a serious moment he's like hey guys like seriously like you know what we do, like what you do is equally hard as to what we're doing and we're giving you the respect of doing it to like give us the opportunity to really focus on what we're doing mm-hmm. you know and the environment on the set was very conscious it was a conscious environment that he created and it was a wonderful lesson as a number one the responsibility that you have for building yeah. the environment that you are create, like that you're going to be in. Yeah, it is. And it's, it is a, it's a wonderful thing when that person who's number one on the call sheet knows how to sort of facilitate an environment of creativity, sense of calm, but it, you know, you can be excited, but sort of like fun exploration of, of the work. Um, that's lovely. That's lovely to hear. And then so most recently, you are recurring in the Emmy-nominated show, Angeline, starring Emmy Rossum and Martin Freeman, amongst others. This is very cool. It was super cool. I'm not going to lie. I've seen her, I've seen Angeline around town in her pink car at least a few times. I feel like everybody has. You can't miss her. She's a living legend. So Angeline, for folks who don't know, is an actress a media personality, a model, and a singer who came to prominence around, I guess, 1984 with the proliferation of a series of iconic billboards around L.A. featuring herself. Yeah, and her name, and a and number. And her name, and her number. What happens when you call the number? Can you explain to people a little bit who Angeline is? Yeah, of course. So she's uh, a fiction of her own imagination. She's an icon. <laughs> she is... LA history. Um, I think she's the personification of what Los Angeles is. Come mm-hmm. here and be who you want to be, right? Um, mm-hmm. Angeline uh, 
was revolutionary in thinking in that she decided to market herself in an era before Instagram and before mm. tw- uh, TikTok. Um, she knew what brand she was and found her way to stardom. And uh, she placed, I think, about over 100 billboards throughout the city. There wasn't like a block that she couldn't go through without seeing her voluptuous body in a very provocative pose with her name and, and her phone number um, for bookings because you want her. <laughs> um, but yeah, dude, I, when I, it's funny, I, I'm, I'm kind of a dum-dum when it comes to celebrity culture. Um, and when it comes to like famous people, um, I've, I've had the opportunity of working with some very, very famous human beings. Um, but I'm kind of dumb. Like I've met Harrison Ford and didn't know it was Harrison Ford. I beg your pardon. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? I was working at a, a Leonardo DiCaprio's production office, Appian Way, uh, in college as a Oh my intern. God. Oh my God. Excuse and me. Can we talk about this for a moment? There's not much to talk about. I just was working there. That's a very uh, that's a that's a, a very important company, and I believe was it Franklin Leonard was working for Leonardo DiCaprio for a while before creating the Blacklist. And I don't know what timeline this is on, but was that around that particular time? Uh, this was around the Quentin Tarantino Django Unchained. Oh, okay. So maybe that's a little bit after. Okay, got it. Um, yeah, so I was working there and they were like, okay, hey, can you, like, it's Christmas time. Can you go drop off gifts to, you know, people's houses? And so they're like, can you drop off this gift to Calista Flockhart's house? And I knew who Calista Flockhart was because I watched Uh, Brothers and Sisters on ABC (laughs) and I love that show. And of course, how am I not supposed to know who Ally McBeal is in The Dancing Baby? So I was like, I called my best friend at the time. I was like, oh my God, Jeanne, like, ah! Like, I'm going to go to Callista's house. Like, I'm going to meet Callista. You know, like, but I never really cared about that kind of stuff. But I was just, like, excited, you know, whatever. And you so had I go, no idea. So I go and I drop off the freaking gift at her house. And I ring the doorbell. And this, like, disheveled man in a bathrobe answers it. Oh. And I'm like, hi, I have a package for Callista Flockhart. And he goes, oh, just leave it over there. And he tries to tip me $20. And at the time, like, I'm not accustomed. Like, again, I come from the work really, really low class working class like you know like low-income working class and so I was like oh you're tipping me you don't have to do that this is my like this is my job like that's fine and he's like well then give it to a homeless person I don't care just take the money and Uh, I was like Jesus I was like okay authentically Harrison Ford right there yeah so I call my friend and she's like did you meet Callista and I was like no but I think her husband answered the door she's like Harrison Ford? And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, Harrison Ford's her husband. And I was like, oh. Well, he looks different. <laughs> like, just... <laughs> Had you seen, what were the Harrison Ford movies that you had seen at that point? None. I didn't like, I didn't like So you had not adventure seen any films. Star Wars movies. You had not seen any Indiana Jones movies. You hadn't none. Seen, you hadn't seen Air Force One. You I haven't seen, seen Air Force One, Indiana yeah. Jones, Star Wars, none of it. I had, because it wasn't my, Gosh. like, I didn't like those movies. I liked, I didn't like fantasy or adventure. I liked drama. And so like, what does that mean? So okay, so when I'm a little I was watching kid, Titanic. I like at okay, five, my right, favorite movie right. was Titanic, and yeah. I owned both the widescreen VHS and the subtitled VHS. And eventually, I lost one of each, and so I would start off in widescreen, and then it would end in subtitle. Oh come on, that's hilarious! 
I, I would watch that movie religiously. Like, I wanted things that would sway my soul. I wanted to bleed well, the humors. Were you, doing, were you doing, did you f- discover any, like, the Merchant Ivory movies? Were you watching Sense and Sensibility? Were you watching Howard's End? Were you watching... So I had ma- some of those. Yeah. I had some of those. Like, it was more like... I loved really sentimental things and then also like kid movies like Brave Little Toaster and My Neighbor Totoro, Spirited Away. Oh, okay. Um, right, right. So I lived in so a much more tender space. You're younger space. than me, but I don't, you must be, you must be, what, I don't know. How old, do you mind sharing? How old are you? I'm 18 to play younger, sir. I don't know <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> me too. <laughs> no, I don't want to be. I don't want to be. I want to be silly, silly dad on things now. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like I guess I sort of would devour anything that was anything that I guess I discovered a lot of stuff just because. Well, when I was I was living in the UK, I've said this on here already now, but like when I was living in the UK, that was my my high school year, so they would put stuff on TV in the middle of the day that was like. R-rated, no edits, no commercials. Like, I would watch, like, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. That's a movie that Mm. would be on at, like, 2 in the afternoon on a Saturday. And I watched a lot of, sort of, adult movies that way. And um, adult dramas and action and and genre things. But I would just sort of, and then it would be just, like, hearing, like, something is good. I would, I would, I, I... if somebody says Evil Dead is good, I don't know that I'm a, that's my favorite kind of a genre, but if somebody said it was good, I would watch it. I would get to it, you know. The one that I talk about on here a lot is Point Break, which I finally, by the way, <laughs> I finally rented. No, I bought it. I bought Point Break, and I am... I've started it, and I need to do an, a whole podcast just about having when I finish it with... Uh, hopefully with my producer, Winston. We should do that. But... I will watch something if people say it's good. How did you decide what to watch? What were you seeking out in terms of movies? I, I don't think I was at first. I think it was just like whatever was in the house or like eventually my uncle had like a direct TV kind of thing. And so I started watching, um, I watched like The Dreamers, which is totally not appropriate for like children. Um, the Dreamers again? It is like this... Frenchish film um, that like deals with like the fluidity of sexuality and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Then is I that, also is that Michael Pitt? I think so. Okay. Yep. Um, I watch things like I don't know Tom Ridley. Like what is what's that? What's the one with Matt Damon? Oh, um, talented Mr. Ripley. Sure. The talented Mr. Ripley. Thank you. Um, my brain's like frying. Um. And then eventually, like, once I got to college, I was watching weird, I mean, everything that they would throw at us. And that's when I started watching yeah. more Spielberg stuff. And, okay. Um, yeah. I don't know. Incredible. I, don't really, I wasn't really hunting for it. I just kind of, like, was there. And then eventually, like, A24 became, like, my jam. I was like, This is the thing that I making. hear now a lot. Yeah, people will talk about A24 as though it is a celebrity. Like, it's, it's, a, it's an A24 film, you know? And yeah. that's interesting because, like, when I was growing up, there was a little bit... Well, I, don't, I don't think people talked about it. I mean, people used to talk about certain production houses, one that must not be named. But there, will, but there were others as well, like October films, I think, uh, Merchant Ivory films. Um, so there was, always, there was always that. I think, like... 
And then there was focus features. I think how to run anything that was like a focus feature was like something that was good. And now, and, and then there was Annapurna, and I guess now A24. But A24, I feel like, I don't know what it is about what maybe how they do their socials or something. But I understand that it's like anything with A24 on it now. There's a there there there's a it it has a stamp of approval. Yeah, and there's like it's it's. There's a younger cult. There's a younger culture of folks, or younger generation of folks, that I feel like uh, has a connection with the with a movie production company that is fascinating to me. But, but yeah, I mean, the the I get excited when I see a twenty four flash before a, a, a trailer as well. I usually think there's you, now you start thinking like, oh, this should be, this should be good. So um, yeah, definitely. Well, let me ask you finally what. What uh, what's what's up next for you? What are you working on? Do you have any projects of your own that you're working on, or have you just started production on something new? Yeah. So on my time on Promised Land, um, I think I discovered that I really want to write. Yeah. Uh, and th- there's just I, I I think one of the things that I always loved is uh, as a theme throughout my career is, has been um, being a part of the collaborative nature of telling the story and. Matt Lopez gifted um, us all like a bit of that uh, in in Promised Land. And I think that I I was just like, wow, I I think that I'm ready to tell my stories. And so I'm uh, I pitched an idea for a story called Las Hadas Padrinas, uh, which is it translates to English to um, the fairy godfathers. Uh, (laughs) And it's an intergenerational story of. Uh, three different queer men, Mexican slash Mexican-American men, uh, all within the same nuclear family. Um, and so the 30-year-old cousin who lives in Mexico uh, brings home his boyfriend to his grandma's 90th birthday. And it's his first mm. boyfriend ever. He still lives with yeah. his parents. Both of them do because of the economy in Mexico that's happening there. And uh, they have an older uncle who also is queer, has been in a relationship for 20-plus years. Hmm. Um and is the patriarch of the family, and then a younger cousin who is born, raised in LA, radical queer, progress now. Mm. And so it explores uh, what does progress look like? How much must we temper ourselves in order to get that progress? And also like themes about like women and queer men and how they both are submitting themselves to the same patriarchal structures. Oh, God. Yeah, that sounds so, lovely. Yeah, it was cute. It was fun. I, it got produced um, by Harley and Company. Um, it's already out, so you can listen to it on Spotify and Apple uh, Podcasts. Um, we were currently, uh, not my episode, but the, the whole, um, we did a reading of it at, uh, at Outfest. Uh, Dominic Colon's script, The Lady of the Sixth Train. Uh, <laughs> it was a, an anthology series. There was five episodes, and each one had its own writer. Nice. And apart from that, now I'm like, I've been thinking about uh, long form storytelling. So uh, I'm working on a pilot right now dealing with the queer community and some mental health. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Um, And where can people find you online? So if you are interested in following me, um, you can follow me at I am Donatiu. That's T-O-N-A-T-I-U-H on all platforms. I will say I'm not particularly active on TikTok, uh, and my Twitter is quite random. 
<laughs> uh, I wish that I had. I'm working on having a bigger social media presence. <laughs> well, you're working on great projects, and maybe, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Everybody has to have their own relationship with social media, but you can speak. It's a weird thing. You can speak through your writing and your art and, you know, you know, who everybody's going to be different with it. Um and you're working so much and on such great projects. It's this has been great. Uh it's so great getting a chance to reconnect with you. You're you're a joy to be around. Um and brilliance and um <laughs> I want, thank you for being so sweet to me. I was be, I was a bit of a shy actor, I think, in that classic Roundlings, and I feel like we grabbed onto each other and hung on for dear life. You never came across as shy to me, but I guess maybe I created a, we created an environment together. I think to you play. made me feel more comfortable in that class. I really do, and you know, I'm so happy to see your success. And um, thanks so much for doing this interview. I wish you continued success, safety, and good health. Thank you. If you listened all the way to the end of this episode, thank you. Hey, since you stuck around with us, why not go ahead and give us a subscribe? Or perhaps a sweet, sweet five-star rating. A nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality conversation in the future. You can check out our Patreon and our swag for more ways to support the pod. You can find both in our Instagram handle at things are going great for me. Stay tuned because we've got just two more episodes left in season three premiering every Wednesday, including interviews with Beth Reisgraf, Susie Abramite, Darwin Shaw, and Gil McKinney. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editors are Sierra Hauser and Leon Simone. All right, for you truly thorough listeners, here's a secret. I went to see Black Panther Wakanda Forever with my oldest son, Henry. Uh, We really enjoyed the movie, but we did one of those 4DX experiences for the first time where the chair moves and you get sprayed by water and there's lightning effects and even smoke. All of it made ordering a pizza a big mistake. (laughs) But the worst part were that there were these little tubes that blow air behind your ears. And it just kept feeling like my chair was trying to be inappropriate with me. I'm not sure that I loved it. I'm not sure that I hated it. The verdict? More research needed. See you next time.